0: If we do the quick equation, intelligence equals vibrational capacity or bandwidth. Think of the internet, you know, bandwidth of your internet. Remember the good old dial-up days. You know, a few kilobytes coming across every, you know, 10 minutes. Now it's gigabytes coming in every couple seconds through a wireless device that's not even seemingly connected to anything. We, we accept that. Why aren't we accepting the same thing about our, ourselves? Why aren't we a wireless device that can connect at a very high bandwidth to all information in the universe we certainly didn't invent something better than ourselves here and so the internet has to be a poor iteration of the fact that we are a cell a cell phone we are the cell that wirelessly can connect to all information if you have a question don't you think the answer is split second away or do you think Google actually invented that capacity? I'm Zach Bush, and this is the Lifestyleist Podcast. Hey,
1: party people. It's your faithful host, Luke Story here, back with another banger of an episode. I am crazy excited to share this one with you today. Our guest's last appearance on episode 304 was such a massive hit, gaining almost 90,000 downloads to date. And since he last joined us here on The Lifestylist, we've been inundated with requests to have him back on for an update on the current state of humanity, and trust me when I say he did not disappoint. You're about to tap into episode 416, Natural Law, Hope for Humanity and Finding Light in the Darkness, featuring Dr. Zach Bush. You'll find show notes and complete written transcripts for this one at lukestory.com slash Zach Bush. For those of you just getting acquainted with our guest, Zach Bush, MD, is a physician specializing in internal medicine, endocrinology, and hospice care. He's also an internationally recognized educator and thought leader on the microbiome as it relates to health, disease, and food systems. Zach founded Seraphic Group and the nonprofit Farmer's Footprint to develop root cause solutions for human and ecological health. His passion for education reaches across many disciplines, including topics such as the role of soil and water ecosystems in human genomics, immunity, and gut-slash-brain health. His education has highlighted the need for a radical departure from chemical farming and pharmacy, and his ongoing efforts are providing a path for consumers, farmers, and mega-industries to work together for a healthy future for the people like you and me and the planet. He also happens to be the genius behind a brand called Ion, which might just be the missing link to gut health that you've been looking for. Now, this convo twists and turns through a vast range of topics, so I'll just drop a few of the highlights here to prep you for what follows. A lot of the conversation is focused on Zach's perspective on natural law, how we fell out of alignment, and how we can find our way back. We also explore the true inner workings of the immune system and get an update on the pandemic how our soil health determines our quality of life, human extinction, fertility, and glyphosate, how 5G and chemtrails are changing our soil, embodying love in a world of fear, using ion to become anti-fragile and resilient, how the gut-brain axis relates to hopelessness and anxiety, how we came up with the name ion, which means intelligence of nature, And I'd also like to add that Zach is a very low-key guy in terms of promoting his company, Ion, but I have to say that after using his products for the past few years, I've seen dramatic improvements in my gut and overall health in general. So I highly recommend that you try his stuff. He probably won't promote it in the show much, so I'm gonna do it for him because it's awesome. You can find that at lukestory.com slash Ion. That's I-O-N. And they have been kind enough to provide us with a discount code which is LUKE15, and that gets you 15% off everything except subscriptions. Again, that's lukestory.com slash ion, and the code is LUKE15. Okay, I will now invite you to take a deep breath and prepare yourself to be inspired by the visionary perspective of Dr. Zach Bush on the Lifestylist podcast. Enjoy the show, and don't forget to share it with someone you love.
0: Zach Bush, we made it. We're here. I'm glad to be with you.
1: Yeah. So I saw you in Austin briefly a few months ago. uh, And then the first time we met, uh, we did an epic podcast at Josh Trent's house in San Diego. I just checked. And to this day, that is by far my most popular and widely downloaded episode ever. I think it's up to about 87,000 people at this point have heard that, which is astonishing to me. Um, And it was one of the most meaningful in the moment too. I remember just, we dropped into a really special place and um, I thank you for that one and thank you for coming back.
0: Uh, I'm glad to be back with you. It's always curious to see what unfolds when we reengage with two beings in the same room. I think there's synergy between souls and uh, I think we're going to get to witness that again today as we did before and something new will come out. Right on. Uh, A funny
1: side note to that, if I recall correctly, at the end of that conversation, uh, which was just incredibly enthralling, there was, um, how do you say it? There was just sort of this, a field that was created or accessed. And I mean, we were just like in some really deep content Mm -hmm. and you were just exploring the nature of consciousness and the cosmos and it it got super far out in in the best of ways. And I think at the end of that conversation, I asked you, you know, I said, I think it sounds like you've done a lot of ayahuasca or psychedelics or something (laughs) like in order to have this conversation, I just presumed that one would have had to enter those realms via those tools. And you were like, no, no, it's just on the natch. And I remember being um, astonished by that because I've had very few conversations um, with people that went that deep without the influence of some of those peak experiences.
0: Yeah, I think it's interesting when we think about plant medicine, it's, you know, obviously showing us something about ourselves. And so there's a tendency for the human mind because we tend to see ourselves as something separate from everything we see around us. We have a belief that we need, you know, these exogenous inputs, be it plant medicine or we need some sort of human experience to justify some sort of growth. Uh, but you know, I think a really ubiquitous plant medicine out there over the last you know 50 years has been the obvious one of THC and CBD in the form of marijuana, and those are showing us something of ourselves because it turns out that the plant itself is not doing something to us; instead, our system is responding to uh, an input, and that input is showing us something that's endogenous or inside of ourselves, which is this massive endocannabinoid system. And so the endocannabinoids do everything from pain management to focus and concentration. They change our sleep patterns, change our metabolism, change our way in which we interact with satiety in the sense of satiety and fullness in our, in and our metabolic intake of food. So, endocannabinoids are affecting all of these different pathways. And then we reach for a plant medicine and we can overwhelm our own communication network for a moment which can have the result of changing our state of consciousness. But it can also, especially with repetition, disrupt our own listening to ourselves. And so it's a big excitement that plant medicine is really catching on, I think, globally right now as an avenue into a different way of letting go of the ego for a moment to find consciousness. And in the end, I think that's, that's the secret to anything from ayahuasca to, you know, marijuana or whatever it is, it's giving you this momentary release, even alcohol. That's why people drink. is they, It shuts off that nagging voice inside of their head that's abusive or the belief of abandonment that maybe triggered the addiction in their bodies. But in the end, we've, we've got it all in here. And so we don't need that exogenous trigger to find the path towards that consciousness connection. So if you want a visual of you know, kind of how many you know, I think philosophers, but also channels over the years, The Course of Miracles being a huge channel that came through in the late 60s, early 70s, and a huge tome of work that's now come through, channeled through many, many different people, uh, incredible books. But uh, Nook Sanchez, a close, close friend, sister to me, and she wrote a book called Take Me to Your Truth. And that book by Nook Sanchez, I think really shows you a very cool, Look at how your truth lies within this knowledge field that is cosmic in scale. It is the whole universe is full of energy. And in my understanding currently, all energy being infinite is actually information. And all of that information is for the purpose of communication or connection. And so we have this knowledge field that is vast across the ecosystems of the the universe. And we have what's called human consciousness, which I think too often we, we attribute to some state of body of knowledge. Like, are you a conscious human? We think of that as like having this higher state. When in fact, the consciousness, I think, is just like a filter or a connection zone between ourselves, our cognitive capacity, and that infinite knowledge field of the universe. And so consciousness is not some sort of enlightened state. Consciousness is simply the channel through which you can reach out into this infinite knowledge field. And to get there, plant medicines can take the veil off for a second and be like, oh my gosh, look at this. Look at what's out there. But it doesn't actually give you your own personal pathway. You have to find that personal pathway in there. And I think that we're going to see the, the common pendulum swing of any trend or fad out there, and it's where it starts to become an abusive crutch. And I think plant medicine is already waving out there. You know, we've got 500 ayahuasca ceremonies in Los Angeles every weekend now, and <laughs> so really? oh, it's, it's an insane amount of intake of this plant medicine. Oh man! And you see, look at something like ketamine, which has become an interesting new avenue for you know the the psychiatry world. This is we have you know 30, 40 clinics now organizing around the country that are really using ketamine as a frontline therapy for PTSD and major depression and all these. And to call them therapeutics isn't even accurate. It's really just a channel or a mechanism to improve the impact of psychotherapy and things like this that have been long used in the psychiatry realm. But now you see people that are dependent on ketamine to leave the house. It's part of their anxiety, you know, treatment now. Instead of being a channel towards awareness, it becomes a drug and i think we tend to do this with everything we put our hands on marijuana is being an incredible example of that there's something that can take out that conscious drive state of the brain for a second to give you a sense of that that more you know theta state of the that relaxation state of the brain and maybe give you new insights on what are the priorities of your life perhaps you know this is one of the avenues that's obvious when you hammer the brain with a bunch of thc but then as a drug, it completely screws up your metabolism, you gain weight, you, your body doesn't know how to mobilize calories out of the liver, same way you can get fatty liver. Like It can destroy the body with chronic use and it can then disrupt your own ability to regulate pain because it's down-regulating all the re- receptors in your body for THC, CBD, all these you know critical pathways. And so we have a tendency as humans to be so externally focused that we find something exogenous to ourselves and be like, oh, that's the thing I needed. When in fact, the thing you need is to find you. And so I think we're finding what you heard at the end of that last podcast that sparks your memory of like, there was something cool that, that we all felt. That's us as two humans who were in dialogue long enough to become fully present together. And then we achieve the plant medicine phenomenon, which is We connect to the knowledge field because we've created a literal vortex or portal of energy between two human beings. And we all get to feel this. And yet we downplay its importance. When you get that goosebump moment when you're with somebody and they drop that truth that you know just got received at the cellular level in your body. You don't even know all the ways that's about to change your life, but you just heard something that's going to fundamentally change the way you see the world. That is an extraterrestrial experience in the sense that something greater than the normal vibration of the human experience just occurred. And you're tapping into that knowledge field that is, I believe, cosmic in scale. It goes in all directions, infinitely. All energy is infinite. And that energy, every, you know, pixel of it is information. And that that goosebump moment isn't so much limited to the words that you just heard but to the, the full potential between those words, which is the infinite, which is this infinite realization of I am connected to truth. And if we are all connected to truth at the molecular level, probably better said at the atomic level, at the atoms that would then go and build our molecules, at the atomic level, we are connected to that consciousness barrier or entry point to the knowledge field and plant medicine might be one of your tools to, to find it, but we're finding that we have incredible resources in the form of breath work, meditation, mindfulness, even sleep, and starting to learn how to work within the dream sequences is a very powerful tool that's been used by indigenous peoples and shamans for eons, is to start to use the dreamscape as an entry point to the knowledge field, to all information. And the dreamscape is a good example of an ego-free environment. You know, I can't remember who said that incredible quote. The difference between dreams and reality is you don't doubt anything in your dreams.
1: Oh, wow. That's cool.
0: And that is cool. Yeah. Because the only thing doubting anything in your mind in this reality that you think is real around you is your ego, is your human you know, intellect, which is so limited. You don't have doubt in your dreams. And so what does that say about the dream state? It means you are free of the human intellect in that space. You are free of the human ego in that space, which means you're spending six or eight hours free of the ego every day, which is an exciting idea because most of us feel so captured by that and so imprisoned by that space of energy that we all can tap into. And I believe that is a, is a single space. It's not like I have my ego over here and you have your ego over there. Like the knowledge field, the ego is a centric space in which we've chosen to dwell in in our consciousness as humans right now. So we dwell within this egoic realm and we all tap into the same energy to access the ego. It's one thing. My ego is not different than yours. And so in the same way, we can get past that, make that quantum leap out of the egoic field into this astral plane in the dream state, but into this real plane of information streams of energy throughout the cosmos.
1: That's man. There's so many offshoots in there. <laughs> it's like, pick one of those threads and run, Luke. I think that's the, the first part about these experiences that some people choose to have, which have benefited my life tremendously with some practice. And and even this is true of meditation and breath work, Kundalini yoga. I mean, all the things that I've explored to to have a um, a perception of reality and experience something beyond the intellect and the ego. After some time, it does become apparent that what's happening is happening within you, that that exogenous thing or practice or whatever it is, is kind of just triggering something that you already have. And this is something my wife is reminding me of all the time um, because her, her path is largely just sitting at her altar, doing her practices, and there's nothing outside of herself that's taking her into these realms and giving her answers and, you know, solving problems and communing with God and all of this sorts of stuff. Um, but I think this is where the integration process is so important because whether you go to a holy site and sit with a holy person or you're doing meditation or you're taking DMT or whatever it is, that peak experience is just that peak experience for me. It's just like somebody opened a window and I poke my head through, you know, and I'm like, Oh wow, this world exists out here or a fish, a flying fish, right, that comes out of the water and goes, oh, there's a whole other world out here. But then how do you take that experience back underwater or back into the home from which you poked your head through, right? It's like, how how can I have that access to um, higher levels of consciousness just walking around being a regular guy, mm-hmm. you know? And I think that's that's one of the traps is the the attachment to those peak states and and thinking that something special has to happen in order to have a special experience when like you said just sitting here sharing air with you and just having two hearts and minds commune in an authentic open way is the experience right nothing has to happen in order for that to be there because that field is already present it's just kind of a matter of what access point you choose to become aware of what's already here yeah yeah That's very it. cool
0: and you know the, there's a couple avenues i think to that application or integration Process that I get excited about that I think are overlooked one one is just a root cause analysis of how did we come to believe that the egoic realm that we live in is reality <laughs> how did we come to believe this is the boundaries of reality and we lost the belief of magic we lost lost the belief of miracles like you know I grew up in a Christian church and You know, at this day and age of my life, I'm dumbfounded that we didn't sit around every Sunday uh, at church, scratching our heads and really deep diving together. It's like, how come we're not all doing miracles right now? Because if we believe the scriptures we believe, they were being done not by Christ. It was being done by all of the people around that energy. But instead, we was we was thinking about what they t- said two thousand years ago, and what what scripture means, and all. It's showing us right here that we all have access to this other reality that is not limited by the biologic sphere as its access point. Which is so obvious now that you know quantum physics. Even at a general state of education these days, we know that you know between relativity and quantum physics, everything is point zero zero one percent solid it's 99.999 percent vacuum space is my body which is all full of the electromagnetic field which is energy which is then information which is connected to all things so i am in the energetic syntropy event or organization of tissue and, and energy that appears as tissue for its particle quality but as einstein shown us a uh, w- uh, light form is both a particle and a wave at the same time simultaneously. And so simultaneous to this appearance of a physical structure of my body, I am a waveform energetic entity. I'm a light body that's emanating information. And most of that information is not coming from the particle you know, portion. That particle that is both wave and particle at the same time is only 0.001%. The rest of me is vacuum space. It is truly empty of any physical form. No particle existence Instead, it has this stable energy force, energy form to it. And that has so much gravitational density compared to the particle state. You know, the work that's been done over the last decade that's showing us the density of vacuum space full of the electromagnetic field is showing it's, you know, it's logarithmically more dense than all of the solid stuff in the whole universe. That's and so, so crazy. It's crazy. Oh and my so God. we are dense. We have form because of the way in which the vacuum is informing the information that would then be structured into tissue. So if you start to think about that, the question of integration becomes a lot less about, well, how do I, what kind of lifestyle would I live that I, I had this epiphany on plant medicine or whatever, is how do I live a lifestyle like that? Instead, ask the question, how do I present as a physical form that would vibrate? And the same energy that I found in that moment that was free of the egoic realm, that freed myself of these small beliefs and take me into that miraculous zone of co-creation with the divine. So this this is our opportunity as humanity right now. And in some ways, because of the march that we're on right now, it's our last opportunity. Because we sit here faced with our own extinction. 80, 100 years from now, we're down to maybe 60, maybe, maybe 50 harvests left on the planet as we completely destroy the, the ecological you know, capacity of the earth through chemical farming and poor crop and soil management, and blah, 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 blah. We can map, scientifically map our endpoint. And we know that our rate of change of behavior and psyche in the human is so slow that we can't change enough things fast enough to prevent that endpoint unless we escape this limited realm of reality that we live in and begin to live in this more connected state of understanding that we are universally connected. And this is where the concept of natural law has started to come into my life, which is all physical matter has very clear behaviors that have to be obeyed. And humans have put ourselves in opposition to these things. And we've written it into our code. If you look at the Declaration of Independence of the United States, It starts with a preamble where it actually defines the law of nature as the new foundation of this new country that's going to come about, in contrast to, you know, divine law that was the the holdings of the royalty of Europe and all of this. And so the belief was royalty was somehow carrying the divine code and law and therefore could make, you know, manifest declarations of what the laws were. And those individuals that escaped Europe to come to the United States or what would become the United States, they came to a land that had long been inhabited by 600 different, you know, First Nations tribes that had learned natural law as an organizational governmental process. And we learned from that. And then we wrote the Declaration of Independence from the, that understanding of natural law. The Iroquois were really the ones that had really developed the deepest science of, and philosophy around natural law. But you know, before, 50 years before this, Ben Franklin had been studying Confucius and all of Confucius' work in defining natural law coming out of the Chinese mindset and all of this. And so you have all of these you know, progressions dating back thousands of years to the Greeks and before of what is natural law. And so we came here and said, you know, we're going to adopt this natural law. But it was pretty obvious that it wasn't going to really work to start a country here just based on natural law, because we had 600 tribes here that were already at maybe a population of 100 million throughout North America. So somehow we were going to have to take over, take that land from them. And so we did something clever in the preamble, or very dark, which is say, we're going to start a whole nation based on natural law, but we will also base it on divine law, which is is higher than natural law. And so that preamble says the law of nature and divine law will be used to understand that divine law is higher. And we know that our God is more advanced than these indigenous peoples. <laughs> oh, and so we are going to claim that any Western <laughs> oh, civilization person who finds a territory owns that territory. And so we brought this, this conquest, colonialism, <laughs> and the concept of ownership to land and some of the greatest you know statements and and speeches that were ever made i think on in north america were made by iroquois leaders and the like who said how can you believe in in ownership at all you're ta- you're talking about the earth the sun the moon the rain how can you claim ownership over this they could see the ludicrous nature and so it's interesting as you start to say, well, how did we come to believe this limited realm? How did we leave the world of miracles, the world of you know, co-creation? We did it by believing that we were separate from the divine. The divine was something external to us. And that ultimately the divine was something external to nature. To be able to put nature in opposition to divine law shows you that we believe that divinity is somehow separate from nature. And so where, where is the schism there? And then if you look at the Oxford English Dictionary, we define nature as everything in the firmament of the, of the world. Plants, animals, minerals, everything as opposed to humans or anything humans have made.
1: Wow, really?
0: So we didn't, God, what a Oxford massive disconnect. <laughs> disconnect. Oxford Dictionary, oh we not God. only didn't include ourselves in nature, we put ourselves in opposition to, as opposed to humans or anything we've made. And so from the preamble of the Constitution or Declaration of Independence to Oxford English Dictionary, we continue to define ourselves as separate from. And as soon as you can get that separateness, you have to believe in scarcity because it's not possible to, to be tied back into that infinite field of knowledge, let alone the, the, the field of resources that nature would have provided that would have allowed us to exist in the first place, obviously. But that we came into existence and then... Gave it all up. We suddenly thought we were in opposition to nature and she was against us. She was attacking us. People were attacking us. You know, animals were attacking us. Bacteria and viruses were attacking us. So we came to this belief system of opposition and separateness. And in so doing, we had to adopt a reality of scarcity. And to protect yourself in the reality of scarcity, you have to adopt the ego. And so you get locked into the egoic realm. To your own belief that you need to own things, which then leads to the scarcity event. You know, a, a gypsy doesn't think they ever run out of resources, right? They they're out there. They they own nothing as far as land or homes, and they travel, and they know that the communities at large will provide. You know, universe will provide, nature will provide. Any hunter-gatherer tribe never worried about running out of stuff, you know, and even the indigenous people of the Amazon that I was with last year, the achuar tribe, they've been in the same sector of the rainforest, Ecuador and Peru for 40,000 years. And they never thought they were going to run out of anything. And that's evident by the way they design their kitchens. They have a fire pit and then they have the rainforest and they go out every day and collect everything. They don't have a refrigerator. They don't have a bunch of, you know, cabinetry to store food in. They have enough for the day. And they go out every day knowing that for 40,000 years, that rainforest is provided for them.
1: I'm generally a pretty easygoing guy, but I do have one huge pet peeve in the health and wellness industry, which is the fact that people spend so much energy on diet fads while ignoring something that's just as bad as junk food, in my opinion. I'm talking about junk light, blue flickering light to be specific. Blue light, meaning any light that looks white at night, trashes your melatonin levels and thus your sleep. But melatonin does way more than help you sleep. Melatonin is the body's most powerful antioxidant, and it's also your most potent endogenous anti-cancer molecule. And light flicker sucks because it can cause neurological issues like headaches, migraines, and even photosensitive epilepsy. And if you wanna know if you've got flicker, you can easily test the flicker of your bulbs by shooting a short slow motion video. If, when you watch it back, the light flashes on and off, you've got flicker. Not good, but fixable. Lucky for us, our homies over at Blue Blocks made some bulbs that only emit red light. So zero blue, green, yellow, or orange light. Just pure red, which is optimal for melatonin production, and their bulbs don't flicker. Additionally, the Lumi Sleep Bulbs do not run on Wi-Fi or Bluetooth, which means very low EMF readings, if any at all. These bulbs are just badass. They did it right. I use them strategically all over our house, mostly in table lamps, since light source positioning is also important. Think of your nighttime lighting as a campfire, warm light at eye level, not overhead, if possible. This is what we've evolved to do. So if you're ready to ditch your blue light, get over to blueblocks.com slash lifestylist and use the coupon code lifestylist to save 15%. That's B-L-U-B-L-O-X dot com lifestylist. And the code is also Lifestylist. How did you end up uh, going down there? What was the premise of that trip? And what did you experience other than that realization?
0: That was uh, the Pachamama Network with Lynn Twist and Bill. Uh, Lynn and Bill Twist are uh, the founders of Pachamama. They were the first Westerners to be called into the Achuar existence. And so the Achuar started doing dream work. To reach the West, they, they had dreamed, they, they're called the dream people. They, they work very similar to the Maori or, or the uh, Aboriginal cultures of, of New Zealand and Australia in that they do a lot of work in that astral dream plane and understand their connection to all things and con- you know knowledge field and resources, and etc. See themselves as a result of nature, not an opposition to nature. And they work through dreams in almost a telekinesis kind of way. And so they started reaching out through dreams to Lynn Twist, and she started dreaming dreams of these indigenous faces of the Amazon. And her story is just remarkable as to what unfolded. She had never been to the Amazon before. She was doing all of her work on the Hunger Project with uh, you know, a bunch of incredible minds from the 20th century there that put that project together to kind of solve the 14 million starving people in the world. And the Hunger Project had her over in India and Africa and parts of uh, South Asia. And she had never been to this part of the world but started dreaming these faces and they were speaking to her in a tongue she didn't understand. And ultimately she got invited on a trip to the Amazon. Didn't think she had time for it. Wasn't on her radar screen. She's like, are they starving? No, must not be my calling because I'm here to do hunger. So... uh, And then she ends up on this trip and steps out of the canoe, you know, deep into the rainforest and sees the faces that she'd been dreaming invasively for months, you know, walk out of the rainforest and welcome her in uh, with her husband, Bill. And that was the first contact the Achuar had with the West. That was 1996. So they were the most recent uh, or the final indigenous people to be contacted by, you know, modern civilization. And they were the very first indigenous people to ever reach out to those colonialists for contact. Every other one had been reached by colonial attack or in- invasive. So the fact that they saw the need to reach out, knowing that it would threaten everything about their culture, and it certainly has. You, you touch Western civilization, and immediately there's importation of our belief of scarcity, and you get money, and you get you know these things that start screwing up your whole. It pulls you into the egoic realm very quickly. But they saw that if they didn't help the West redream their future. All of civilization would be done.
1: Holy shit.
0: And so when we went down there, it was in the midst of, you know, coronavirus. And in fact, Delta had just come on as like everybody's afraid of Delta virus, you know, variant of coronavirus time. And people were like, You guys are going down there? Like, what if you wipe out the entire tribe? What if you take Delta to these? So lots of conversations back and forth, and the Achuar, you know, ultimately laughed and said, no, we, we went and did plant medicine at the beginning of coronavirus. We, found, we were told to use these five plant medicines and they work and we, nobody dies of coronavirus here anymore. And so they had found it in the jungle. They had found their solution. But my favorite response to it, which I didn't hear until we were down there, the question came back up, are you afraid of coronavirus? And they laughed. They said, we've been dreaming the end of the world for a long time and it has nothing to do with coronavirus. Humans are the end of the world we are we are the existential threat we are the pandemic and that's a much different you know perspective for us to start to wrap our heads around of course we would be the pandemic because we're the only things in nature that are capable of separating biology from from our knowledge field we have created the ego we invented that stuff it's what separates us from you know the bison that we were talking about earlier or the or the the, you know, monkeys of the rainforest, you know, what's the difference between a primate and a human? I would say ego is a big one, you know? And so we created an egoic realm of scarcity through our belief that we owned intellect. And we look at a blue whale and, and if we fail to understand that, their intelligence, we have failed to understand the, the miracle of life itself. But we do it every day. We treat nature as if it has no useful intellect. We treat the bacteria of the soils as if they are not an intellectual you know source of knowledge and information for the universe, and so we have come to believe we own knowledge, we own the end for it, we've lost all of it
1: zach you you seem like an inherently optimistic person, you know despite some of the the stats that you're able to rattle off that are that are quite alarming, I'm sure to many of us um, and I would say I'm a relatively positive person. But I would, um, I'd say I lean into more of a conspiratorial worldview in that um, the duality in which humanity finds itself um, is is drastic and extreme. And I, I don't think it's not supposed to be that way. It seems as though creation has manifested itself in all the realms, right? And created this perfect earth school for us. Um, wherein a guy like me can be born October 1970 and be have the freedom of will to become a serial killer at the lowest end of the consciousness spectrum, just an animal, uh, up to the highest realms that a human nervous system can hold, you know, an angelic mystic of sorts, right? So I kind of see everything as perfect. But how we arrive collectively as being so ego-dominant and so duped into this sense of separation <laughs> Is it is it my ego that wants to find a them that did it to us? You know what I mean, like these shadowy deep state figures and these royal families coming out of Sumeria and eventually, you know, made their way into Europe and uh, you know became the Stalin's, Mussolini's, Hitler's, Mao's, all that, right? And then we see kind of the the trickery and um, manipulation and deception with all of the coronavirus stuff and all of the loss of fundamental human rights without a lot of logic or science to back it up and so many people being harmed. Um, I still, while I'm trying to see myself as part of the fabric of everything and knowing that everything is supposed to be, um, I still have the sense that there's some bad guys (laughs) that are trying to fuck us all over, (laughs) you know? And Even though I kind of understand, I think that that's part of the game, is because that's what gives me the opportunity to evolve, right? If it was this, um, if we were living in this utopian, angelic realm here on earth where there were no bad guys and no ego and no starvation and famine and war and all of these things, then there would be a very small spectrum in which I could grow and evolve as a soul. So I kind of see the perfection in that. Yet there is a side of me that's like, there's these shadow, you know, these Klaus Schwab's and the George Soros and these seemingly evil people at the far spectrum of duality that are like really harming the the vast majority of civilization through their like egoic power trip of control and and domination. I don't know if there's even a question I can get out of this. I'm just sort of sharing the thing that I try to get my heart and mind Mm -hmm. around uh, daily in order to just stay positive and know that all is well. But do you think there are kind of these shadowy figures over the past you know, 10, 15,000 years that have kind of somehow managed to wrestle dominance over humanity as a whole, where these indigenous peoples are being pushed further and further out of their life way and their lands and everything you just described to me seems like less of a natural consequence at times and more deliberate, you know mm-hmm. what I mean? I don't know if that changes the solution, but what's your what's your take on that when you see the rapacious nature of kind of the powers that be, the multinational corporations, et cetera?
0: Yeah, I th- I think it's something that's just obviously a continuation of an energetic vibration, right? And so at the beginning of the creation of an egoic civilization or an egoic species that saw itself developed enough intelligence, you know, enough intellect and the five senses that we have that gave us this unique perspective capacity to believe ourselves separate from others. And so The Course in Miracles does a good job of talking about the five senses that humans have were actually specifically designed to, to set the trap that we would see ourselves separate from. So my visual field gives me the impression that that tree is over there you're over there. And then I have a sensory system that says I'm right here. I can feel my legs right here. I can feel this. I can feel the vibration of my voice in my own body. This is me. And that's that tree. And so that is much different than the way in which a bat or an insect that sees in, in ultraviolets and infrareds would see the world. They see a continuum of vibration and energies that have no you know, need for separation in some ways. And so it may be that our five senses became this this really powerful tool that could be used to convince us as our intellect kind of reached a certain level that we were separate from everything around us. And so that that beginning of separateness, I think is a deep lesion. And then you have personalities that unfold, you know, dating back 5,000 years or something is the Enneagram, nine personalities. And if you set a belief of separateness, therefore a state of of scarcity, therefore the need for ego. And then you set into motion nine personalities that are going to behave predictably within social environments. You're going to have a couple of those rise to dominant powers. I'm a three on the Enneagram. Other threes include JFK and Hitler. And so much to your previous point, you're born with a certain vibration, You, you if you believe in us, you know the specifics of astrology. You can start to see how the vibrations of planets would be arranged to set into motion a certain vibration in you the moment you were born, and so perhaps that's that's the mechanism underneath the science of astrology. But regardless, this vibrational experience of a personality being set in motion within a society that has a belief of scarcity, there's going to be a few of those personalities that begin to be able to be dominant. In the field of of influence, and so that dominant personality rises to its full potential energetically, and I think we have to let go ultimately of judgment of is it a good soul or a bad soul, because we can't see the soul, and we're limited to just their body and their human behaviors in this broken egoic separateness event, and I think that it's intriguing to understand that the soul that is animating us is is not a human psyche. It's some sort of energetic field that is adequate to actually give coherent waveform, adequate to then give a particle state that would be a body. We can't come out of nothing. This body cannot come out of nothing. And so in my mother's womb, I needed to connect to an energy center that would vibrate at a clear enough coherent signal to say, this will be Zach. I had to come out of a plan like that. I had to come, I had to emerge from a coherent message and template for life, template for the intention of life beneath me to exist as a particle state creature. And so I am the result of that. And as soon as I die, I become detached from that energy center and my body goes into a rapid state of decay. And interestingly, I think if you look at humans around us today, we realize we are dying long before we let go of that last moment. We might be dying as early as two years old. At two years old, we start to lose the light energy within each cell because we start to diminish the number of mitochondria that can liberate solar energy from the food we eat. So at age two, we, become, we, we start to decay in our light energy vibration. Which is pretty fascinating because right about age two is when you see this human psyche capable of reaching for the ego. And so, the terrible twos that we say about kids is really that human psyche starting to be taught and experience the energy of the egoic realm and understand how to tap into it, which is a completely new experience for that soul because it was just in the entire knowledge field of everything. And that's why when you look into the eyes of a newborn, you feel like you're on a cosmic journey because they're still in the field. They haven't made the jump into this limited realm that we live in yet. And that's why you can hear the truth bombs drop out of kids' mouths at two years old, three years old, four years old. They haven't yet completely given up their direct connection to the miracle, to the direct connection of all-knowingness. But by age five, they've largely let go and they've put up this wall of the ego between them and they've come to adopt it through very specific verbal training from the adults around them that they don't know anything. Don't do that. You know, don't don't trust yourself. We don't do that. All the social norms, social beliefs that you're young and stupid and you need to learn all this stuff and you have to go to school for all these decades and then someday you can become an expert. They're the freaking Dalai Lama sitting right there at two years old. They already made it to the knowledge field. That's where they came from. And so frustratingly, I think when we look around, we're, we we go through this egoic jump at age two and then you say, well, is there really a cabal or is there, you know, these people attacking us or is it just a whole human species that's been set into motion in a limited concept of the egoic realm, expressing different personalities and not surprisingly one family becomes dominant because some Number three became a Hitler and destroyed life and extracted tons of energy and then creates a special, you know, resource pool for their own people so that there's more likelihood that the egos, those personalities within their tribe that can be more egoically energetic, you know, force fields or, you know, gravitational fields continue to play that out generation to generation. So did some family move from South Asia to there and this and that. Yeah, but if we limit that to a belief about that family line or whatever, we're missing the bigger picture that it's actually an energy. There's an energy vibration that's moving through humans that is low vibration inherently because it continues to reinforce this egoic belief. And in the egoic world of scarcity, you have to survive and to thrive. You have to extract more from more people. and So you become... Warlike in your behavior, you become extractive in your behavior, you become colonial in your behavior. you become very masculine dominant in your behavior because the the feminine energy that lies within each of us speaks every moment to. you are completely nurtured. you are connected to the universe. you are a co-creator within the universe. you you have all things at your fingertips. We have tap into that to the feminine archetype. So the the darkness that's around us is us. And so to point externally and say there's a cabal or there's a conspiracy theory is really say that lies within each of us. We all tap the same ego. We all reinforce the energy of the same ego.
1: That's yeah, I like I like that perspective. That's a little easier to sleep at night with that one. It's just us. This (laughs) is just us. It's a mess. I think by now most of us know that minerals are important, but it's really tough to know which minerals to take without knowing what you need. And mineral imbalance is a huge issue, so guesswork is pretty sketchy. Wouldn't it be great to know not only what minerals you need and which mineral levels are too high? Well, I recently found a very cool way to accurately test all of that and take the guesswork and wasted supplement spending out of the equation. I'm talking about upgraded formulas, upgraded hair test, and consultation. It's really fast and easy to do. You just cut a couple small hair samples, mail it in, and then book your consultation, during which one of their expert staff explains your mineral levels and even your heavy metal toxicity. We just sent in my wife Allison's test and got some good and not so good news. She was luckily very low in lead and mercury, which is awesome, but we also found high aluminum, which is less than ideal. Luckily, her mineral levels look super solid overall, but her magnesium levels were a bit high and her selenium a bit low. So with that accurate information at hand, we did a heavy metals detox protocol to get that aluminum down and also determined that she does not need to supplement magnesium for the time being, but that it would do her some good to up her selenium intake. And not only does Upgraded Formulas have you covered on the test and consultation, but they also happen to make the best absorbed minerals I've ever found. Getting your minerals right can sort out hidden deficiencies that are affecting thyroid, adrenal, and many other systems in your body. So I highly recommend you check out the test and consultation at UpgradedFormulas.com. Now, you can also save 15% off your first purchase by using the code LUKE at checkout. That link again is UpgradedFormulas.com. Looking at how some of those dominantly egoic families, individuals, groups have not only um, survived but persisted, but also somehow managed to take control of so many of our society's institutions, right? The education system, the medical system, the financial systems, all of these big systems, which ultimately kind of control the fate and destiny of large swaths of people. Seems that those personalities have emerged and like er, grabbed onto some of the media, right? We're really seeing that now. And so it's it's a challenge to not get trapped in an us and them thing, right? And I think that's what I was getting at when I try to zoom out and just go, no, it's all perfect because it's given me the opportunity to see that reflection of my lower nature, which I'm totally capable of. And I've expressed a lot mm-hmm. earlier in life, yeah. you know, I just didn't have the power to dominate and harm that many people, but I certainly harmed a few around me and, and myself uh, not the least of which. So seeing them as other is the whole trap of control, right? I mean, that's where, that's where we lose. Um, And I think with what we've experienced over the past couple of years, because I've I've really looked at this and it's just such a, just objectively fascinating human experience that we've had with the Corona stuff and all this. I mean, it's just mind blowing. And, and watching, you know, the, um, the widespread, thankfully loss of trust in, in the media and, and many of these other institutions that I mentioned when I can like get unemotional about it on the more positive sense, to me, what I perceive to be happening is that the collective consciousness of humanity has, however, slowly risen to a point where the falsehood and those lower states that have been kind of lurking in the shadows and pulling strings can no longer be hidden. Right? So it seems like there's this upheaval of evil, in the world, but perhaps it's that there's enough good and enough love and understanding amongst us, enough of an awakening, that it's just kind of shining lights on some of those shadowy things that have been there for a very, very long time. And we're perhaps getting to a point where we're less willing to tolerate it. And you can see this with the decline of, you know, the mainstream media. I mean, so many people now realize that we're being lied to, Largely, not to say that all media is all wrong all the time, but there there certainly is an agenda at play, and and many of us are going no, we you lied to us last time, you're probably lying to us this time about whatever war we're kind of you know tricked into supporting and things like that. So maybe it's maybe it's good news where we are. Right, and there's people like you that are kind of sounding the alarm about the soil and different things that are so meaningful and impactful. But maybe it's one of those things because we're kind of in the eye of the storm. It seems like it's getting really dark and we just can't tell what's going to be 10, 20, 50, 200 years from now. We could look back on all of this 2020 to now and God is the best thing that ever happened to humanity, right? Because we reached a certain point of intolerance for the abuses that we've been um, perpetuating ourselves as a collective and, and putting up with for so long. When I look at it like that, I... I'm able to kind of sleep at night, you know, and no, just we're kind of in the middle of a dream that's really spooky sometimes. And so don't panic yet. We just keep, I guess, individually doing our work and elevating each of our individual expressions of consciousness. And perhaps for me, it's like not trying to be a do-gooder and changing the external world to fit what my limited perspective thinks it should be. Maybe it's just how much more can I open my heart? How much more loving can I be to myself and to those people in my immediate vicinity? You know, what, what depth of conversation can I have sitting here in a podcast? And how can I maybe instigate someone else's heart or mind to open in a different way and to, to broaden their perspective in the way that mine's beginning to?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that the individual is the whole on so many levels. And that's, you know, certainly where it comes down to you know, something as simple as health, maybe. You know, we have a tendency to be taught by the environment around us that health comes from something exogenous to ourselves. Just like we need plant medicine to get to the knowledge field, uh, we need you know this drug over here to control our blood pressure or this drug over here to regulate our mood so we're not depressed or this one over here to reduce our anxiety or this one over here to improve our sleep quality. You know, and so we are always reaching exogenously outside of ourselves when obviously health is a resonant state of knowing your self-identity so well that there's this constant regenerative effort towards self, you where know, your, your boundaries are constantly becoming resilient, knowing that this is me within. this is the, the interface of energy outside of me. and I can absorb all of that information. I can filter it. I can know the truth within it, whether that be a biologic you know event of a stem cell turning on or uh, you know, a philosophical idea coming to me the more I hold myself and my boundaries healthy, the more health emerges from within me. And so it's this cool, you know, kind of quantum state of once you know self, you have access to everything. The boundary creates the infinite as said by William, who's one of my colleagues that I work with a lot. And so that, that boundary event creates the capacity for you to interact with, with everything. When you don't know yourself and you're more of, uh, your brain is out in this amalgamation of roles and beliefs about who you should be, how you should be performing, all of this egoic realm, you can't even vibrate at your original state that you were when you were, you know, born. That first state where you were connected to everything, you know, you had just come out of this egoic free dream world that was real. You got then trained into believing in unreal world. Or in a world that believes that there is scarcity, a world that believes that there's limited resources, a world that believes there's limited life, a world that believes there's death and is an endpoint. You know, there, the egoic <laughs> realm has us locked into such a limited view, and so we we then lose ourselves. We can't find ourselves, and so knowing self, feeling that infinite within, then opens up all things in all directions all the time. And it's exciting to realize that it's not going to be a human journey to find ourselves back there. It's going to be a soul journey that gets us back there. Because ultimately, if there is an energy field capable of animating me by a coherent waveform that would become Zach, that thing has a high, high intelligence state in regards to if we we do the quick equation, intelligence equals vibrational capacity or bandwidth. Think of the internet, you know, bandwidth of your internet. Remember the good old dial-up days. You know, a few <laughs> kilobytes coming across every, you know, 10 minutes. Now it's gigabytes coming in every couple seconds through a wireless device that's not even seemingly connected to anything. We, we accept that. Why aren't we accepting the same thing about our, ourselves? Why aren't we a wireless device that can connect at a very high bi- bandwidth to all information in the universe? We certainly didn't invent something better than ourselves here. (laughs) And so the internet has to be a poor iteration of the fact that we are a cell, a cell phone. We are the cell that wirelessly can connect to all information. If you have a question, don't you think the answer is split second away? Or do you think Google actually invented that capacity?
1: Have you ever uh, looked into the work of David R. Hawkins? the author of Power Versus Force. I, I love that book. It's yeah. phenomenal, yeah. You, you reminded, he's my all-time favorite tea. I just love that guy. <laughs> I <I've laughs> him speak a couple of times, and I mean, I've probably listened to thousands, not even exaggerating, thousands of hours of his lectures. I just, I might take a few months off, and I think, okay, I kind of get it. I go back, and I'm like, oh, now <laughs> I get it. But what you just said about the, kind of the the infinite field of consciousness, and how we, as an individual expression of that, have access to it much like a cell phone would to a network. It reminded me of how he would use kinesiology, right? To get answers to anything anyone could ever want to know, right? Yeah. It's either a yes or a not yes, you know, depending on how the nervous system responds. So it's like, we're actually already walking around with a truthometer and we don't even know it. It's just our body. Like imagine if one could Fine tune their senses enough. I guess we call this intuition where you don't need to actually perform a kinesiological test, like hold the arm up, resistance or not. Right. But imagine as we can evolve into just going ping, oh, yep, it's a yes. And all of us do this to some degree. I mean, I do this a lot, but it, it's not to the point um, for many of us, I think that is reliable and repeatable and verifiable. We mm. think we have a hunch and then we don't listen and things go poorly. We think, ah, I knew it. Right. And then sometimes we know it and we proceed and trust that. And you go, oh my God, thank God I said yes to this. I mean, my marriage is one of those where it was Mm -hmm. like, you know, there was a precipice that I was standing upon. And if I didn't lean in and kind of follow my gut and my intuition, my body was saying yes. And my intellect was going, oh, I don't know. It's kind of too soon. uh," You know, whatever it was doing. And I just went, shut up, brain. This feels right. And And it was and is, you know. But I think that that's so interesting that, it's like we all have that capacity. It's just many of us don't know it yet.
0: We well, forgot it. Yeah. We all knew it. Right, <laughs> you know? right, right. And so that's that's an exciting, I think, change in the paradigm. So when you're out there in mindfulness territory or doing plant medicine, a lot of the speak is around, we need to get our consciousness higher. We need to do the self-work to get ourselves up this thing. So we have this very human three-dimensional model of this slow creep from being you know, a bacteria to an angel, you know, whatever yeah. it is, you know, <laughs> and we have a belief that we're somewhere in the middle of that and we're progressing up the hill, you know. That's not, <laughs> it's not a three-dimensional reality we live in. You know, there's 27 different dimensions, you know, and only only four of them are limited to the belief of time, you know. <laughs> and so, the reality we live in and this hierarchical model of consciousness we have is wrong. Consciousness is not something that moves. It is it is the interface between the egoic realm and the reality of the knowledge field that's infinite. And so consciousness doesn't move. You, you can't go and move consciousness higher. Consciousness is only the space in which you interact or access all things and the reality around us. So what David Hawkins or any shaman or, you know, any, you know, saint that's been sainted by the Catholic church, those were individuals that figured out how to reach past the the veil of the egoic realm to say, I can do a miracle. I can reach through this veil and I can access all information. You know, if you look at any scripture of, you know, from Buddha to Christ to the rest, they were individuals that opened up that knowledge field and flowed so much divine And when I say divine, it's that, that original frequency of creation. So much divine energy flowing through them, both in having to be masculine and feminine, understanding the structure and flow states of that energy. And when they found that flow state, they created miracles. They created massive changes in human philosophy. They created massive changes in human civilization. And it's not limited to them. You look at, you know, the creative natuses in, in, in the world, the, the sparking of a, a Michelangelo, you know, the sparking of you know, something like Yo-Yo Ma. I don't know if you've ever seen him in concert, but there's a cellist that I believe changes the vibration of humanity with every time he picks up that instrument. And when you see the grace and the gentleness of that man, you are seeing something of the divine that he has learned to express by his interaction with an instrument, which looks like an inanimate object, and yet it vibrates in the same range as the human voice. And so I think he's learned to open up a portal to that divine state through his mastery of an, a vibrational vessel.
1: Perhaps, perhaps it's, because uh, I like where you're going with the sort of linear perception that many of us have like, well, I'm at a lower state of consciousness here. And this life is about getting higher and higher and higher in consciousness. Right. And so what I'm hearing you say is we already are high right? (laughs) because we're, we're, we're at one with that, which is the highest, right? Christ consciousness, call it what you will. But perhaps it's that some of us have more blocks that are preventing us from having that experience and truly expressing what we really are. So maybe the game isn't about kind of the acquisition of a higher level of understanding or energy. It's, it's perhaps it's a game of subtraction. It where it's discarding those things within us that are less than true or, or are less than high, right? It's For me, it's not like I need to become a more authentic person, right? Because I already am an authentic person. Perhaps the work might be in building an awareness around observing when I'm being inauthentic and removing that attitude or behavior to reveal what's already there, which is a totally authentic, honest person.
0: Right? That's exactly right. Does that it, kind of make it, sense to it, you? It, it has to be that way. And what you just said, basically, is the synopsis of every scripture that's ever been said, which is <laughs> be childlike. Right. Let go of everything you believe you know. You don't know anything. Your human mind. <laughs> Let go
1: of all of that. Oh, man. Tell that become to everyone on childlike.
0: Twitter. <laughs> you know, become childlike. And, and let go of the human egoic mind and the intellect and everything we've built from it. Because we, we missed the whole message. And so I really believe we are starting to discover that we, we, in our egoic journey, flipped the whole paradigm upside down. We think we're growing towards some start of wisdom, when in fact we need to be subtracting or surrendering back to our original wisdom for all human history. So we're not trying to like leap over some sort of consciousness, you know, paradigm to get smart or you know, wise finally to live up to our homo sapiens, sapiens name that we gave ourselves, which means wise, wise ones, right? And so homo, homo erectus, all that. We became homo sapiens, the word sapiens meaning wise. And I think that the egoic translation of that was like, you have to reach this this state of intellectual wisdom, all of this, rather than knowing that you came from wisdom. You are an expression of all of the wisdom of the planet. And this is where I love my work in the microbiome, because we're finding that if we believe in in a data field, an information stream in nature, it's not coming from human cells. It's coming from bacteria, fungi, protozoa, parasites, this massive ecosystem that constitutes a human body. I'm outnumbered, you know, probably 100 to 1 ultimately by these other organisms. Genetically, it gets insane. The entire genomic database of the fungi is somewhere around 5 million genes. A human only has 20,000. We are a pixel in the genetic sea of just the fungi. That's crazy. Bacteria, protozoa, all these things. We are this uh, ditzel of information genetically. So it's not like nature was working to eventually get to the genetic intelligence of a human. A fruit fly has 13,000 genes and a flea has 30,000 genes. So we at 20,000 genes are closer to a fruit fly than a flea. A flea has you know, 10,000 more genes than you do. And so we're not some genetic pinnacle of existence. We somehow are an energetic vessel that allows us to tap into this field of knowledge differently than a flea. But the information that is held at the cellular level is so vast. And what we know about nature as a whole is how did life occur on the planet? It was because somewhere in the fabric, the natural law of life itself is two general rules, is that life will only occur through the capacity for adaptation, and that is achieved through biodiversity. Biodiversity feeds back on adaptation, adaptation feeds biodiversity, and it's this beautiful feedback loop. And then humans come along, see ourselves separate from all of that biodiversity that allowed us to occur, and we see ourselves in opposition, and we start to kill all of that biodiversity, and then we find ourselves all going extinct. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Whoops.
0: (laughs) And so it's just fascinating that just as we... You know, demean the intelligence and wisdom of a child, we, we assume this low energetic state of bacteria or fungi in the soil systems. And so we come to abuse them all. And we abuse them at the same rate, not surprisingly, because it's all egoic, you know, mechanism. We've wiped out 97% of indigenous peoples on the planet at the same rate that we've wiped out 97% of the arable soils of the earth over a 200 year period. Over 200 years, 97% of indigenous cultures and peoples and 97% of arable soils have been destroyed. 97%, that leaves us with 3% left. And I believe it's that 3% of indigenous cultures that are going to show us something of where we all come from. Because we are all indigenous, ultimately. My genetics come from an indigenous people. The Celts were really one of the first full-scale holocausts that happened where the Celtic people were were you know, under a massive genocide from Julius Caesar in the Roman Empire. Uh, Dan Carlin's work is amazing. If you if you don't know Dan Carlin in hardcore history, he does these long form history lessons in these incredible you know war war states of of human history, and you learn so much about the egoic state and listening to these histories that we have. And so I come from a nearly wiped out genetic line of the Celts, you know, and the and then moving into the you know more recently the scotch irish and they almost got wiped out got blamed on a potato famine but it was really a complete destruction of resources and capacity for tr- commerce and all kinds of economic blockades that got put on the scotch irish peoples by at that point the british empire and so i come from genetics of indigenous peoples that were tr- were you know attempted genocides over and over again we all have those trauma histories within us we all have this and I believe that we're in this interesting state of awareness suddenly starting to bubble up. We need to be aware of our indigenous peoples. But I think that we do them a disservice and we do ourselves a disservice and we cripple our ability to really move past our egoic state when we romanticize those indigenous peoples that are surviving instead of saying, that is us. We need to tap back into that wisdom and we romanticize them. We try to lift them up a little bit, but we do nothing to change the dominant paradigm that's crushing them still. it's, It's this greenwashing symbolic grossness really that's there when we try to romanticize an indigenous people that are being destroyed by our own daily activity of clicking the Amazon order now button. That's what's destroying the rainforest is our consumer Behavior because of the word consumer is the result of the egoic mind that is colonial and extractive. We are consumers of life. We are not creating it. We are consuming it and we're sucking it out of this planet as fast as we possibly can to our own extinction. Or we let (laughs) go of the the
1: the (laughs) egoic
0: moment. (laughs) We let go of the egoic moment. We stop consuming for a moment. We realize that everything is infinite. We realize that everything is abundant. We move from scarcity to abundance mindset. We realize it's ludicrous for me to say that Dr. Fauci is different than Donald Trump, is different than Hillary Clinton, is different than Zach. No, we're we're the same protoplasm. We're the same 20,000 genes iterated over and over again with slightly different variations. And then we have this egoic mind that is so eager to find judgment points to say, that's different than that, that's better than that, that's bad, that's good. Our egoic mind is what does all the judgment and therefore separates us not just from nature, but from one another. And so you and I can sit around at a dinner party and be like, oh my gosh, the media or Dr. Fauci or you know, whatever it is. When in fact, we need to be saying, but what about the mycelium? What do we learn from that? How do we t- tap back into that intelligence? What about the vibration of the Pleiadian galaxies and 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 what lies within that star cluster what 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 do we need to tune into to that vibration what's over here you know in in a drama, andromeda that we could tap into yeah, th- those are the conversations we need to get to pretty quickly instead of trying to to split hairs over who's good and bad and right and wrong in the human matrix it's all egoic it's it's the, that's all it is And so we're going to fight to the last person and destroy all of life, believing that there's a cabal destroying us, when in fact, we are destroying ourselves by our lack of connection to everything in the universe that manifested us in the first place to give us the opportunity to play this game of connecting to everything. And we're so close to connecting to everything now. And I think one of the proofs of that is the concept of beauty. For a long time, I struggled with the concept of love because I look around at humanity and I was like, we're never going to make it. Because if if John Lennon and everybody else is right that love is everything and everything is love, I can't find an example of humans doing love well for any period of time. We tend to screw it up because we see it as a scarcity event as well. We're looking for our person or the thing that will complete me or the... Those are two egoic minds trying to combine to com- create a whole mind, but they didn't let go of the ego. So now you have two dueling egos in that love, that exclusive love relationship, and it's going to destroy itself over time. We've done that over and over again in the in the word of love. And so I was like, "We're screwed. We can't find love if if that's the fabric of everything. We will not make it." And so I was lecturing on it. I was trying to find people with wisdom around it, like, "How do we make this lovely?" And one of my close colleagues, uh, Patrick Tempo, uh, was in this deep meditation event and came back with a message for Zach. Zach, I heard from the divine energy that a specific message to tell you that everything is not made of love. And I could say, see him take a breath for the next sentence and I had goosebumps all over my body and I knew it was going to be the most important thing I'd heard in my life because this was the... This was the thing that would give me a spark of hope for the future or it would put it out. <laughs> and he said that the fabric of everything is not love. The fabric of everything is beauty. And I just bawled. I just was cried and cried and cried. Couldn't catch my breath. We were at this coffee shop and I was just a mess. Just like snot coming out of my face. It was a huge emotional release for me. Because first of all, I, I could feel the vibration of truth in that where I couldn't find the vibrational truth that the fabric of everything is love. It didn't resonate with me. But this resonated deeply like, oh, I now know the fabric of everything. But the real tears came when I realized that you don't need to teach a single human being how to see beauty. And so if that is true, we are that close to tapping right back into that knowledge field resolving the egoic realm, resolving our beliefs of scarcity, because every mind from every culture, every one of those five senses can experience beauty and know it immediately. Nobody has to be taught that's a sunset. And when that happens, you should ooh and ah and feel really warm and wonderful inside. This is a sunrise. And when that happens, you should feel really good and hopeful and a new birth inside of you. Nobody has to go through that teaching. That's what happens when you witness beauty. And nature does it vibrationally, right? The sunrise, the sunset, these are vibrational events. Our eyes attribute all kinds of different colors to that and all things. Those are just human constructs. What is happening that is true for all animals at that moment, all life at that moment is a vibrational transition point of light. And that's what we feel at a dawn and at a sunset. We feel a transitional transitional state of vibration. And we all know it and we're all tapped into it at the exact same time. So how hard is it going to be for us to exit from an egoic realm of scarcity and war and exploitation and consumerism? One sunset. If we can all become present for the one sunset, we will all immediately let go of the egoic journey for a moment. We'll do the plant medicine journey straight into the knowledge field and be like, it's the same sunset for every human on earth. Oh my gosh, it's the same moon for every person every night. It is the same earth for every person all the time. Oh my gosh, all cells are vibrating to the same sun. doesn't matter if you're a bacteria, a fungi, or a human. It is going to be dictated by the sun and moon cycles every month. The seasons affect every living being on the planet. Oh my gosh, it's all one. We are one living organism. So there were that one sunset away from letting go of the egoic mind and seeing the beauty within all things. And when you see beauty, you experience love. Love is not the fabric of everything. Love is the experience of seeing everything for its beauty.
1: Mm. Wow, that's good. That's good. I'm going to ponder that for a moment. (laughs) We're so close. We're so close. <laughs> like it, I, on on terrestrial radio, you know, they used to say, never have dead air, you know. Sometimes <laughs> I just have to like soak something in for a minute and leave some dead air. Yeah, that's that's a really beautiful perspective. I'm going to take a moment to ask you something. How often do you wake up in the morning and instantly wish you had just one more hour of sleep? You know, you hit the snooze button and hope next time your alarm goes off, you feel more energized. Well, I get messages from people all the time specifically asking for brain solutions. So they usually mention things like brain fog, low energy, poor focus, and so on. Well, I recently found a truly incredible solution to all of this called Neutopia. They specialize in personalized brain supplements known as nootropics. Taking this stuff is like flicking a switch and turning your brain on within the first 10 minutes of waking up in the morning and feeling totally engaged, focused, upbeat, and productive no matter what life throws at you. I actually had my dose of Newtopia this morning and I'm feeling quite focused and perky. And I've experienced this effect over the past few months since trying Newtopia. These guys have legit created the most advanced brain support and cognitive enhancement system that I've ever tried. And uh, I've tried a lot of them. It's kind of like a do not disturb feature for your brain. And unlike other products in this category, there are no crashes, jitters, or side effects. I'm actually shocked that these formulas work so well without making me feel uptight and tweaked out, which is often the case with things that can be stimulating to the brain. So I highly recommend the Nutopia system for anybody looking to take their focus, creativity, and mood to a new level. So to turn your brain on, go to newtopia.com slash Luke and enter the coupon code Luke10 for an extra 10% off. That's N-O-O-T-O-P-I-A. These guys are so confident that their stuff works. They also stand by their products with a 365-day money-back guarantee. So this is a no-brainer for your brain. Again, that's newtopia.com slash Luke. And the coupon code is Luke10 for an extra 10% off. Uh, A lot of your work is around um, soil and regenerative farming and educating in that realm. You're going to be out at Rome Ranch, some of our friends here in Texas tomorrow, uh, with whom I've spent some really special time uh, watching how they're taking a dead piece of factory farmed industrial land and reviving it to something even maybe better than it was to begin with. Um, uh, How does soil play into this hope that you're describing and, you know, the kind of the future of how we're able to move forward and actually have abundance for for real in terms of food, resources, energy, etc.
0: Yeah. Soil is the original macroeconomics. It is the original internet. It's the original sociopolitical system. It's the original everything. Soil is the result of Massive biodiversity coming together to create something greater than itself. Soil is a massive biodiverse ecosystem in which each element within that, each species within that that matrix or that fabric, has incredible importance, and and adds to the intelligence and capacity for adaptation of that soil system. And this evolved over a great period of time. Planets fourteen billion years old. Life is about 4 billion years on the planet. And so 4 billion years ago, we had the first single-celled organisms, little bacterioid kind of things. Within half a billion years, we developed viruses. And viruses are not living beings. Viruses are just genetic envelopes to send genes further. For that first half a billion years, 500 million years, life began its, its march towards Biodiversification and adaptation by sharing genes by touching each other, which I think is awesome. It's called horizontal gene transfer. So the bacteria in soil systems, just like the bacteria in an ICU that I work in as a doctor, is a complex system of, of bacteria. And if you pour a bunch of herbicides, you know, or or pesticides on a piece of soil. It wipes out a vast amount of the life within the soil systems. But there will be a few organisms that happen to have a genetic variant that allows them to escape the, the death toll of the herbicide. Same thing in, in an ICU. We give broad-spectrum antibiotics to wipe out all bacteria on this human that currently has sepsis or some bacteria that's overgrown in their bloodstream. And we think we're doing a good thing by trying to wipe out all bacteria because we have that us-and-them mentality. Here's the human and there's the bacteria. We don't realize it's one ecosystem. And so we're trying to sterilize this human. And every time we sterilize them, they get less well. And so we do a whole bunch of other things in the ICU, and then we, you know, try to. What starts happening in the soil or in the in the individual there is that this pressure of death from the antibiotics of the herbicide or the antibiotics of our drugs in the ICU is going to start to select for a new opportunity for life because life is not the opposite of death, life is the continuation of whatever is disappearing. And so all of the energy from all the bacteria that are dying in the soils or the earthworms that are dying in the soil, all that energy cannot be destroyed. It has to persist. And so it will take new form. And what starts to happen is the bacteria that find that loophole around the death toll of the herbicide or the antibiotic in the ICU will start sharing that gene immediately. This is the opposite of humans. If there's a new thought in a human, they immediately go about figuring out how to make a trade secret or a patent out of it. How can I make this my own? I'm, I, I'm not going to go into any business meetings because I'm afraid somebody's going to take this new idea from me. <laughs> it's called inventor syndrome. It's a really violent psychological condition in which people will isolate themselves from all of humanity trying to protect their idea. And then they'll die with their idea never affecting humans. And so... We do the inventor syndrome while the the bacteria of the soils are sharing all new information in real time as fast as possible. And so we did that by bumping into each other and sharing genes through the cell membranes as bacteria. And we still do this to this day. The ICU develops drug-resistant, multi-drug-resistant bacteria in in there. We, We now know things like, you know, VRE, which is, you know, at vancomycin-resistant enterococcus bacteria or MRSA, MRSA, which is a, a methicillin-resistant staph aureus bacteria. These guys got resistant because of the pressure of the antibiotics and the herbicides trying to kill things. And then a new gene is found, and they immediately do gain a function out to the whole environment. And they want as many people to survive or many bacteria to survive as possible. And so when I say I love soil and why I've put so much energy not just in my own, but our whole research team and our bio, basic science laboratory, everything else that we have at my company, were enthralled by the possibility that the whole secret of survival is, is sharing information as fast as possible. And the big leap in life on Earth happened 3.5 billion years ago when the viruses became possible. When we figured out that as bacteria, we could not just pass information to the bacteria immediately touching us, but we could actually create a cool envelope that we could put genetic information of one of these gain-of-function opportunities and send it out into the, into the air where it could actually travel the whole globe. Aerosolized viruses can travel thousands of miles. And it touches another organism that can pick that envelope up look at that genetic material and cell by cell decide whether it's going to replicate that, use that. And if it does use it and finds it useful in strengthening its own immune system or its own relationship to the world around it, it will start making that same thing and send it back out into the world for more genetic sharing. Life is pandemic. That's how it exists, is it had to be pandemic for it to evolve. And so we have been doing gain-of-function laboratory science at the cell level for three and a half billion years to create the beauty of life around us. And then the human intellect comes along and says, we're humans. Those are viruses. They must be bad because they're not humans. But then we decode the genome and we find out that 50% of the mammalian genes that we have within us were inserted directly by viruses. 10,000 of our 20,000 genes were inserted directly by a virus and we would not exist without those updates. They're critical genes. One of them is the gene that allows us to have a placenta, which was necessary for the first live birth. We went from the eggs of reptiles and, and birds to live birth of dolphins and other mammals and humans through the the orientation and, and possibility of a placenta which was a direct insert of a new gene that was carried by a retrovirus like HIV. The gene necessary for my mitochondria to be dumped out of my sperm before it would fertilize an egg was another retrovirus update that would allow human life to occur. 50% of my genome directly inserted by viruses. The rest of it was horizontal gene transfer and other mechanisms of putting together the potential of life that we would call human. And we've demonized the whole virome. right? Got to kill all those viruses. We got to invent a, a vaccine so that we, we aren't subject to any viruses. It's a ludicrous game because there's 10 to the 31 viruses in the air I breathe. That's one with 31 zeros after. And there's 10 to the 31 viruses in, in the soils. There's 10 to the 30 viruses in the ocean water. We are living in a sea of genetic opportunity that are called viruses and they're not living beings. They're simply the genetic possibility of life on earth. And it's brilliant. That is a big gene pool capable of creating something that we have never experienced on this planet before. And it happens at moments of extinction. And so I'm so optimistic because I love being a vibrational being. I know my soul will outlive human, this human will likely outlive anything we call human. And so I'm not worried about my energetic existence But I get to also imagine what's going to happen when this extinction continues to unfold. Because if we look back at the last great extinction, which was 55 million years ago, the dinosaurs never got reinvented. That's pretty interesting. That was a big journey from single-celled organisms to triceratops. I feel like if I was Mother Nature as a sentient Organization of Information, I'd be like, that Triceratops was awesome. We should go do that again. (laughs) Asteroid hits, kills all the topsoil of the planet. When you lose topsoil globally, you acidify the oceans and you lose 95% of life on Earth. That happened 55 million years ago. Now, we're killing all of the soils of the Earth and we're acidifying the oceans to kill 95% of life on Earth again. So as the extinction occurs, something different is going to happen. Because when we put the whole planet under stress back 55 million years ago, stress is the accelerant to change and adaptation, therefore more viruses. So there was more genetic potential at the end of the last great extinction than it had ever existed before that moment. And out of that, we didn't recreate you know, the, the global uh, world of ferns. We created flowering plants, deciduous trees. The beauty of the wildflower that you walk through today is the result of planetary stress that created new opportunity for life that would be more biodiverse and more adaptive. And so we now have pollens that can go globally. We have you know all these things that life has figured out how to move more vibrantly, more expressively, more beautifully than it did before the last great extinction. We're halfway through this extinction. So we've put more stress now on the planet than that is ever in its history because there was more organisms with more biodiversity, with more genes than ever existed in time. And so we have the largest gene pool in Earth history right now. And we're putting it under a massive extinction event, which means every single cell in all of life from a plant to a human is right now trying to figure out enough adaptations or enough new possibilities for life that could out-survive the toxicity of what we've created. And so what's going to happen? What's the next jump from bird to human? What happens when humans go extinct and we have all this new genetic potential on the earth? What's going to be manifest then? So much beauty to be had. But we're the existential threat. So we could stop and we could abort this extinction event and still have more genetic potential than has ever existed on earth and stay to play. You and I could become part of the co-creation of a new earth, a new environment, and where not just other genetic things start to happen, we could genetically update. We could make this paradigm leap of new genetic potential because of what we've created. The viruses my body are creating right now, I'm creating new viruses right now. And in this short time together, we're going to exchange an enormous amount of genetic information. And we'll do it through viruses and exosomes and endosomes and just a sea of RNA and microRNA, uh, micro which is not even genetic uh, gene. It's tiny little controllers of genes. So we're swapping so much genetic information, this little bit of time, just breathing in the same room together. We are reshaping each other. And you extrapolate to that the whole world under massive stress if we stop the stress event. We stop the asteroid. If we stop killing the topsoil, stop acidifying the oceans. If we just participate in soil, we get to become the creators. And so, when we go to a farm and we help them move from a, a destructive, you know, extractive mindset of "I want to grow forty bushels of corn per acre, I want to extract energy from the soil and the sun and make bushels of corn," to a change in mindset as "I want to be a soil." creator, and I want to do everything in my power as a farmer to create more nutrient density, more microbiome diversity, and more energetic potential within my soil systems, now that farmer has become perhaps one of the first creators in human history. We've been exploitive, extractive our whole existence, really. We turn somebody into a regenerative farmer, and their interaction with the soil is the beginning of a new human civilization at the genetic level. Not some theoretical, sociopolitical thing of like, what if we had food sustainability and food security? Well, that would be nice. We don't have it right now. We need that if we're going to survive. But much cooler than that, that farmer is giving us a tap into the knowledge field. It's breaking through the egoic belief that we are separate from the soil. And that farmer is becoming our priest. That farmer in its psyche is connecting us back to God. Whatever you think that word means we're talking about a divine energetic state that allows intellectual capacity and creativity to even occur and the beauty of the universe to be manifest. That farmer is finding their way back into that space. And they do it in such a humble manner. I love farmers. They're so inventive and they are just unbelievably hard workers. And they are committed with a passion to doing what they do because they know they're never going to get rich doing what they're doing. And so it has to come from a deep place within themselves. And when we give them the back the opportunity to not be a destroyer of nature, which is currently how they're taught, education of a farmer is, here's the 17 chemicals you need to spray around your whole farm to kill absolutely everything so that you can then go and spray these inputs to then plant a few species that can survive the toxicity of what you just created through these 17 chemicals that you just sprayed. And that's their education. And that is exactly what my education was. Here's the 1,700 chemicals that you're supposed to spray on every human being coming into your office. And here's the few chemicals you're allowed to start to support their ability to try to get back to some sort of health. And so it's the same model for farmer and physician as we've been trained into this chemical destruction of life. As soon as you go into this regenerative mindset as a physician or a farmer, you start to really change your capacity to be a generative center to be a co-creator with this nature that wants to evolve within us, around us. And, that, and so this is why soil is really everything. It is our entry point back into the cosmos, into our own future.
1: Could it be fair to say that soil is the microbiome of the planet? Is there, is there a correlation between our world that we're walking around with?
0: Yeah, yeah. the microbiome is, is what allows soil to occur as a living organism. Without the microbiome, you have sand or dirt. You know, sand and dirt don't have live life within it in the sense. It's got some energy in the crystal structures and things like that in the silica, but it doesn't have life within it. The thing that manifests life is definitely the microbiome. The microbiome is in our bodies is similar to the soil system. So we have bacteria in every single orifice and environment within my body, which is different than I was taught in medical school. In the early 1990s, we thought that the human body was sterile. Past these barrier events of my skin and my blood vessels and my gut lining, we thought that had to be sterile. And if you got any bacteria in there or viruses, God forbid, you would get sick and die. Now we know that my bloodstream right now, as I sit here healthy in front of you, has 10 to the 15 viruses in it. 10 billion viruses, different viruses are... thriving and streaming through my my ecosystem of my bloodstream right now. So if I have 10 billion viruses in me, what does it speak about the bacteria? Turns out I have special bacteria that are living in my brain right now. I have special bacteria that are living inside my liver, inside my prostate. Every organ has its own ecosystem of bacteria, fungi, protozoa, even parasites that are existing to maintain this ecologic balance and, and life within it our bacteria outnumber us you know, at least 10 to 1 at the human cellular level. But the most dense you know, population of that bacteria is definitely the soil of my gut. So when you say, is the soil the microbiome, it's definitely the majority on the planet too because my lungs have bacteria, so does the air that I breathe. But it pales in, in population or, or perhaps diversity than we would see in the soil. So when we kill soil, we're definitely killing the, the 95% of, of life on earth. And so we need to stop the destruction of soil systems and food systems are going to be the expression of that. When we stop growing ethanol in our, you know, 80% of our, our Midwestern farms that are growing corn, that's going into alcohol distillation and be added to your gas tank so that you're using a little less fossil fuel. Alcohol is a terrible fuel for engines. I grew up as a mechanic. You put alcohol in an engine, it destroys it so quickly. And so it's ludicrous that we're using alcohol as a fuel in the first place. It's a bad engineering decision. But then to look at that as a commodity that we're wasting 80% of our arable lands to put under chemical agriculture and destroy the ecosystem and all biodiversity on life so that we can have a little bit of ethanol to put in our gas tank is the stupidest equation that's ever been put into life on earth. (laughs) And so we have to rethink all of this. Uh, And the soil is definitely the intelligence of it. And so as you start to understand regenerative agriculture, you realize it's an access point to not just food, but to the whole concept of sovereignty of life. Once we come to behave in sovereign relationship to bacteria within our soil systems, we will certainly on that journey understand the sovereignty of a farmer. Which And when I use the word farmer, you have uh, maybe a, a concept listening to this podcast of some romanticized version of that. The vast majority of farmers out there don't own their land anymore and are are you know some multinational conglomerate or some high net worth individual went and bought a bunch of farmland and has installed a farm manager on it they have no ownership in the land they work their tails off with no expectation of security and they have no security because as soon as that farm starts making money the high net worth individuals no longer has a tax haven so they sell the property and the farmer loses their job and things move on and everything else That's the majority of farms these days. We are losing 8,000 family farms a a year in the United States now. And so family farming is a thing of the past instead we bring in farm managers who then manage largely migrant farm workers who are illegal undocumented workers that are in a si- in a cycle of arrest export deportation and then importation through illegal pathways that are extremely dangerous and hazardous for them to to get in through and then they're put into slave like labor camps to run these farms under and none of them have any value seen by the consumer who's buying the organic carrot off, the, off of the shelf and thinking they're doing something good. You know? And so when we find sovereignty for the soil, we will start to have to ask the bigger questions. When we talk about regenerative agriculture, it's not about just soil management. What does regenerative human labor look like? Are we going to respect our farm workers enough to give them sovereignty, to give them protection under a nation that eats the food they pick? are we going to give sovereignty to the indigenous people that are being kicked off their land so that big fortune 500 com- country companies can can grab up their land in these land grabs that are going on right now and these people are being forced off land that they've been on for tens of thousands of years A corporation comes in buys the, buys you know 150,000 acres or 150,000 square miles of land from brazil and they wipe it, they cruise in and they hire a bunch of local militia to go in and drive everybody off of their land so that they can grow, you know, a bunch of regen, you know, genetically modified crops there to create ethanol for the Brazilian fuel industry. So these are the problems that we will solve when we find the sovereignty of soil. Wow.
1: Damn. I don't. Uh get that involved in environmental issues. It's just, it's not really my lane, something I've studied a lot, but I've always been pretty suspect of the widely held belief um, that um, cow farts and other forms (laughs) of global warming are going to be the end of us. Because if you just do a little research and you look at ice core drillings, you see that the planet's been much warmer many times in the past due to solar activity of the sun, et cetera. So there's a lot of it in terms of just environmental activism that seems motivated in kind of more taxation and more control, the big enemy, carbon, all this kind of stuff. And again, I'm, I'm not an expert from, just from a gut perspective and a little bit of research, a lot of it seems dubious at best. The soil thing though, whenever you or anyone talk about it with any degree of uh, understanding and depth is just like, oh, all the light bulbs go off and I'm like, yes, duh. Like if you're going to get on something, this is the thing, this is the thing. And it just, it really makes sense. One of the things that I don't hear mentioned a lot in circles of regenerative agriculture and how you're describing, you know, the importance and critical nature of our soil is the effect that geoengineering has on the soil. You have like the conspiracy theorists, people that are like, ah, they're poisoning all the water and all the soil on the whole planet with this aerosol spraying of the barium and aluminum salts and all of this crazy stuff. Who knows what's, what's in this stuff they spray? But to me, just on a gut level, I would think that because the pH of soil is so important, that if you start dumping, you know, essentially metal dust on it from above mm-hmm. continually 365 days a year in in most of the NATO countries that I've traveled to, it's pretty much every that day, um, you'd think that that would have a really negative impact on the health of that soil and its ability to sustain and produce more life. Is that something you're aware of at all or have looked into? Is, is anyone studying this or is it just too crazy of a conspiracy theory for people to entertain? Well, that stuff's definitely, in you know. When meanwhile, it, it, like you can look up in the sky and go, that's not a normal plane like that, you
0: know. Yeah, and, and the normal planes are spraying that stuff in the air. You know, and so fuel has a lot of this stuff in it. Nineteen ninety eight was definitely a, a an inflection point of the amount of aluminum in the air, things like this. Um, but cyanide is an interesting one. You know, so cyanide is also you know accumulating very rapidly in all of our city centers now, and so. It, Uh, California as a state is, I think, 50 times the allowable limits of cyanide in all city centers now. EPA is supposed to put out warnings to everybody not to leave your home if it's over like three parts per per million or whatever it is. And now we're like 50-fold that every day and the EPA is not putting out any warnings and everybody's walking around LA like it's just a normal day and not realizing they're bringing bringing in a bunch of cyanide. And if you combine cyanide with with, uh, the carbon particulate in smog or air pollution, and then you add a virus to it, you end up with really rapid cyanide poisoning, which results in the very syndrome that we just called coronavirus, which is people show up blue and hypoxic. That was the beginning of, of the pandemic. The rest of us eventually got cold-like, flu-like symptoms and had you know, a couple weeks or things like that. But the people that died in these last couple of years died of an event that did not look like an infection at all. Instead, they showed up hypoxic, they had you know, normal respiratory function. They did CAT scans or, or chest x-rays on arrival, and there's no problem. There's no pneumonia. There's no fluid in the lung, but they are hypoxic. To get that event, you have to have enough cyanide in the bloodstream to decouple oxygen from hemoglobin. And it turns out that coronavirus is a naturally occurring cr- virus out there, binds to a part of the lung epithelium that can traffic cyanide in. You know, three three months before, or I guess it was six months before, it kind of hit the news. But within months of the beginning of the pandemic, a bunch of watchdog agencies started suing the U.S. government for not uh, not making aware that we suddenly had had a massive increase in cyanide in the air that we were breathing. And so, L.A., San Francisco, a number of the municipalities started suing the, the EPA, saying we have a cyanide crisis and nobody's talking about it. And then we go into a normal respiratory flu season where coronavirus shows back up. Every 10 years, we have another big predominance of coronavirus move around. MERS in 2012, uh, 2001, 2002 was the one previous to that. So we had another natural coronavirus event, but we had more cyanide in the air than we had ever had before, which gets trafficked in the bloodstream very quickly by coronavirus when it's tagged to a carbon particulate. To get carbon particulate in the air, you need massive fires which we happened to have just before this pandemic. So Australia had the biggest you know, wildfires in recorded history, put more carbon particulate in the atmosphere than ever before, which bonded to the cyanide in all of the big municipalities around the world, which then bound to coronavirus. And we blamed the coronavirus for these hypoxic deaths that look nothing like infections. So we had two populations that, that suffered from coronavirus. One that looked nothing like an infection and died quickly from something that looks like cyanide poison. And one that, that had complications of what looks like an infection and eventually pneumonia and all of this. One was highly, had high mortality, cyanide kind of hypoxia event. The other had very, very low mortality. We should have asked some deeper questions as scientists and physicians to that story. But when we look back over time, We love to kind of blame the microbiome for the problem. Spanish flu got mentioned so many times in the pandemic. Like, well, this is, you know, could be the next Spanish flu, blah, blah, blah. What was the Spanish flu? It was influenza in 1917. It's thought that 20 million people died of flu in 1917. But if you look at the same thing about atmospheric conditions of 1917, you find out that it's very similar to the atmospheric conditions of of 2019, 2020, highest toxin rates that would damage lung epithelia and cause large lar- large scale death from respiratory function. That time it wasn't cyanide in the air; it was mustard gas. In World War One, the war was really determined in the end by chemical warfare and the dumping of and and transmission of mass amounts of mustard gas into the environment. And it rolled slowly across fields. When you read accounts of World War I, the soldiers in the trenches could see the green cloud slowly rolling towards them of mustard gas. It's very dense, slow-moving. Travels foot by foot. And when that eventually reaches the trench, nobody can breathe. You can't. All your epithelial membranes are torn apart, all that. Now you realize it took a year for that to cycle all the way around the planet, two years for it to really disperse itself. But we dumped more mustard gas in 1915 and 1916 than ever. In, this is the biggest chemical, you know, toxification of our air ever. And then innocent influenza comes on along a year later and suddenly respiratory death all over the place. And we say 20 million people... 20 million people died of the combination of an influenza virus that was capable of bonding to carbon particulate and mustard gas and, and killing people with it. That's a possibility. We have to start to come to terms with human activity is setting us up for these massive transmission events of viruses. When in fact, the viruses are always transmitting across our, our lung epithelium all the time. And so in the end where we're starting to land is we have to realize that it is human behavior in our separateness from nature that then can turn nature into something that looks like it is opposed to us. Because it has to be. Because for every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. And if as a species, we continue to move into the environment with a concept of and a philosophy of exploitation, destruction, and consumption, there's going to have to be an equal and opposite reaction from nature. And it's going to look like we're being attacked by viruses. When in fact, the viruses are making a natural adaptation event to the very thing that was the problem for the planet the first time, in the first place, which was human behavior. So if we start to say, you know, there's, there's geoengineering going on, probably geoengineering, but a lot of this, the, the, the small metals that are sprayed in the atmosphere, I understand is actually very important for military imaging. And so we can get very high resolution of, of uh, satellite imaging of the planet so military satellites, spy satellites, etc., can see much higher resolution if there's a small amount of, of aluminum or other light metal particulate in the air. And so maybe it's geoengineering, but I think it's just as likely that it has to do with you know, desire for information to try to control you know, geopolitics and, and war information. So wh- whatever reason we're spraying these things into the atmosphere, we're doing it at a level that has never been experienced before. But it's probably still not our biggest problem. It's probably got more to do with, you know, arson and, and fire starting to get 2021 to look as bad as 2020 from a respiratory standpoint. We had to have another massive fire event, and so we had the worst fires in, in U.S. history from the December to, to January of 2020, 2021. That again reinfused all this carbon particulate in the atmosphere to retrigger the whole pattern of coronavirus binding to that binding to cyanide, which is made by fires that are burning, you know, buildings and other things. And so we had to retoxify the planet again to maintain the, the momentum. You know? <laughs> oh my! And God. so, and if you look at most of those fires in California, they were reported to be arson, not natural fires. Yeah. And so, human behavior is the existential threat. Why is it so existentially threatening to life on earth? Because we think we're separate from life. And we think we are, have to war for it.
1: It goes back to the beginning. It's, it's that one fundamental flawed belief
0: or perception. Thank goodness it's that simple. Because <laughs> it means that we're that close to, we're that one sunset away from realizing right. we don't have to do any of this stuff. We don't have to right. worry about geopolitical stuff. We don't have uh, geoengineering. We don't have to worry about any of that. If we just come to this realization, we will have everything we've ever wanted if we just relax into our beingness. If we become the child within us again and allow nature to re-engage with us, we will immediately become resilient again.
1: And if we were to do so, perhaps we could find other carrier waves for wireless data that aren't deleterious to all living species, you know, that's like the thing too. I'm I'm looking at the sprain in the sky going, hello, like you're worried about like plastic straws, you know, at the smoothie place, look up. But also it's the proliferation of all of this wireless technology and just the, the, the sheer level of radiation in our environment and the effect it has on the bee population and things like that, that, we, you know, we're so sort of ambiguous still at this point that we don't See the future, you know our sort of limited perception of oh we're just got to do our thing and get what we need today, and what we need is a faster download or more surveillance of the population or whatever they're putting the cell tower every ten feet in every city. But that's one of the things that I'm like ah oh, hello, and so I'll find myself fighting that because it's like God wake up people. But the wake up is that we're we're not disconnected from nature, and so. The people that are in charge of um, rolling out and um, inventing and reiterating technologies like that, that are only seeing this present moment and the bottom line. And, you know, how can we throw up this infrastructure quickly and cheaply? And we don't care how it's affecting living beings. But imagine if they didn't see themselves as separate either and were interconnected. One of them might think, hey, maybe we could use scalar waves. Or what was Nikola Tesla doing to transmit energy and feel? You know, like there's another way to do everything we're doing that's stupid. I just know it. But I guess it's, you know, it's a matter of, you know,
0: how do how do we get there? And it's possible that, I agree with everything you're saying there, and I also think it's possible that the very technologies that we see as the enemy, 5G, might be the solution. And so the reason why everybody's concerned appropriately about 5G, well, I wish everybody was concerned, the re- reason why some people are concerned about 5G is because they realize that, that for the first time we're putting out, you know, broad-spectrum transmission of these waves that interface right at the biologic wave's length. And so different than 3G and 4G, 5G has the ability to interrupt cellular you know, mechanics of communication much more effectively than 4G and 3G did. Now, all of them are you know microwave wave radiation in the form of radio waves or whatnot. But the, the energetic band that we're now in at 5G interfaces with that plant next to it. Therefore, you can see the dieback of plants around a 5G emanation I've seen that. And things like that. Yeah. Or, you know, these things. is because it's in, in the frequency, you know, bandwidth of, of the human cell. But that just told you something really radically cool that might be the solution to everything is that every cell is a vibrational receiver. It can receive 5G. Therefore, it can be destroyed. What I just told you is something very exciting. Every cell can receive 5G. It is the communication band of nature at the cellular level, which means we just found out how to communicate across distances from one cell to the next. And so what if in the 5G waveform, we start to put the frequency of love? What if we start to put the frequency of vibration that allows for resolution of the immune system? What if we put in waveforms that helps a bacteria talk to another bacteria? 5G may be the methodology that we become co-creators with nature again if we have reverence for that nature and then see ourselves as co-creators rather than exploiters of her. And so these things can either be our death nail or they can be our avenue into the beauty that we are capable of producing. And I believe that with every technology. Nuclear weapons, horrific thing that we dreamed those up and then deployed them on humans. It's grotesque. But that same technology gives us something of information as to what suns are. And if we come to understand what a sun is, then we come to understand what food is. Because we come to understand what food is, we start to understand what CO2 actually is in the atmosphere. It actually is the fuel for life. It is not the demon everything you've been told is bad about climate change is probably the best thing that we've ever had. (laughs) CO2 is the secret to life. Without carbon dioxide, everything dies instantly. And I can prove this in the lab. When we grow cells in the laboratory, we close them in in a completely sealed, encased, you know, refrigerator-like structure, warm it to 37 degrees Celsius body temperature, and we regrow cells that have been frozen before. We can regrow tumor tissue or healthy human cells or seven other species we have in our lab. The only thing you have to give that is glucose or or fatty acids or both. So some form of a long-chain carbon that carries solar energy. Those long-chain carbons were CO2 that got put together into long chains by chlorophyll, which are the little bacteroids that live inside of plants that are called plastids. Chlorophyll being the famous one that takes all that CO2 and changes it into long-chain carbons. There's now all these double bonds between those carbons that are carrying sunlight. You then digest it and it goes through my liver into my bloodstream and goes into my cells and inside my cells are the the, the sister bacteria to the plant plastic that are called mitochondria. And the mitochondria then break apart all those carbons and release sun energy. So I I am taking advantage of a food system that allows me to release solar light energy within myself. And if you come to that realization, then it totally changes your relationship to carbon dioxide in the atmosphere or energy within a a nuclear plant. And you start to understand, understand that everything is being stored within biology. Biology is ultimately the ultimate battery. So all this lithium that we're extracting from mines under slave labor in Africa and everything else to make lithium batteries to store energy for Tesla's cars is selling ourselves so short of the reality that energy is infinite and it is held within biology at the most extraordinary efficacy ever known. A cubic centimeter of cells is crammed full of of mitochondria, which liberate the light energy from my food. There's 200 mitochondria in every single human cell. They diminish as we age. But with those 200 crammed into the cytoplasm of your cell, you're almost solid mitochondria. And so you've got all these mitochondria and every cubic centimeter mitochondria makes about 10,000 times more solar energy than a cubic centimeter of the sun. And so biology has perfected energy release at a more effective rate than the sun has figured out nuclear energy. And so if you want to know where the future is when it comes to energy, it's not oil fields, it's not lithium chloride batteries, it's biology. And when we learn that energy is infinite and biology has already figured out its ultimate capacity for extraction, which allowed life to occur in the first place, we can start to build biologic systems of energy for human usage, for our own invention, for our own creativity. And when we start to build in the biologic realm and co-create with Mother Nature, our whole concept of an energy sector is going to change. And we will allow mitochondria to release infinite amounts of sun energy within a home to light our lights or whatever it is. We're going to stop trying to run fiber optic cables everywhere and say it's an internet. We're going to start working with mycelium that have been fiber optic cables since the beginning of time. (laughs) My body is tied together with fiber optic cables called gap junctions. There's 100,000 perfect cables with light apertures at the end of every one of them that that connects every one of my cells to the next cell. Hundreds of thousands of fiber optic cables connecting one cell to the next cell. At such a microscopic level that you're like, you know, 30 to 50 times smaller than a human hair is a bundle of 10,000 of these cables. These cables are so tiny and yet so perfectly designed throughout my whole system. And without that connection, my whole body would be cancer. Cancer is simply a cell that became disconnected from the internet and no longer knows it's part of the whole. And so it thinks it's the last semblance of life. And it's so damaged at that state that it can't repair, so it has to divide. So it becomes a tumor. And then it has so much demand it can't make its own energy. So it has to suck energy from around it. And it sucks life out around it and ultimately kills the person. We are the cancer. We became the cell. We became the species that would separate ourselves from all of the, the internet of intelligence of the of the planet. And we would become something that was so damaged inside of ourselves that we couldn't repair. And so we just had to replicate. And now at 7.8 billion of us we're sucking all of the energy out of the planet because we have forgotten that we can produce our own energy. We are the metastatic cancer on the planet and we're killing her. And when the cancer finally dies, the planet will come back to life very quickly because it knows how to do fiber optic connection. It knows how to do energy production at a rate that we've never figured out in our big you know, solar fields or wind farms. Those are hilariously inefficient, ridiculously destructive Wind farms, amazing, down in the rainforest last year. All these huge highways are being built right into the Amazon rainforest right now. And it's like, oh my God, you could see them from the air as we we're coming in these little bush plains. China, building these huge highway systems in there. Why? For oil extraction? No, no. To mine all the balsa trees out of the Amazon rainforest to build the windmills for wind power. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> all right. Oh God. So we are so missing... <laughs> the point when it comes to any of our scalable technologies, because we keep thinking so finite about our own existence, about the, the fact that we do exist within this cosmic beauty of a planet that for 14 billion years has evolved to the point where it can support life like us. And then, and then we destroy it. And so something more intelligent has to emerge. And it could be us. We could express ourselves differently. And certainly, the virome, that huge genetic database that's now out, out there, could help us with the gain of function. We could genetically become more resilient, more long-lived, more connected to vibration at a deeper level so that we could express a higher intelligence. The virome is there waiting to play with us. Mother nature is regenerative in her things. If we help a farmer stop spraying herbicides and pesticides and stop overplowing their land for one season, it comes back more robust than it's been in two generations. For really? It one recovers season, that quickly, huh? It recovers wow. so quickly. It's wild. Earthworms back from nowhere. Macro flora and fauna coming back. Birds that they haven't seen in forever. Fox, coyotes, everything's coming back on a tiny little farm which is like an island in the middle of all this dead zone of hundreds and hundreds of thousands of acres and miles of GMO corn and soybean throughout the Midwest. One little farm does the right thing. And Mother Nature, whoosh, right into it, lights it up, says, yes, we can do life right here. And it is so full and it is so dynamic. And there's more biodiversity every year. And the farmer just blowing his mind in five years that all of the invasive weeds that they had before are completely gone. They don't have to kill weeds because there is no role for weeds. Weeds only come in when you've so destroyed the ecosystem that they're the last semblance of life that can get nitrogen back in and try to do repair. There is no need for weeds when there is life. And I think that's it for me. If I allow life to percolate within my own mind and see the reconnectivity to all of things, the weeds that I would call my thoughts start to diminish. My invasive thoughts start to diminish. I become clearer about who I am and I become a more effective participant in an ecosystem of life something beyond humanity I am a more effective member to the cosmic energy of stars than I was a few years ago because there's less weeds because I've come to see myself as connected and childlike and know that there is no intelligence that's mine there's no intellectual property being protected here. <laughs> I am an expressive piece of nature and nature designed me to be the most expressive you know, element of her because I'm human and humans have been given the gift of communication on neat levels that a lot of, you know, we have so much potential to co-create within nature. And if we do the right thing, I believe in 200 years, we will see the most vibrant chunk of life. Because imagine that regen farm times a million. How much life is going to be spawned from our realization that we can be partners to the nature we live within. It's going to be bonkers cool. We are going to see species of flowers and trees, and we're going to see nutrient density within our foods, which will fuel the minds of children that will think greater things, that will be greater vibrations than we can become because they're more nutrient dense. They are becoming more crystalline in their structure for their relationship to the natural world that we've destroyed within ourselves those children will invent a society we cannot imagine. That's sitting right there, one sunset away from our reconnection. But to do that, we're going to have to come to a unified philosophy. So that's... One of the reasons I'm excited to be here is to tell everybody about the Institute of Natural Law and Governance. We just launched this organization. Really? And we're very excited about the possibility of an organization just being there to help people understand what a unified philosophy of natural law looks like and allow them then to adopt that into their lives to see what they can generate. Because regeneration is not an option at this point. We don't have time to go build something from the past and hope we survive. We have to generate something completely new. We need to generate a new human body that's never existed because we're going to need a body that can handle the toxicity of all the aluminum and cyanide and everything else in the air. We're going to need a human body that can tolerate the amount of trauma and emotional you know, abuse that we've put on the planet as we've destroyed 97% of you know, indigenous peoples and soils at the same time. We're going to need a psyche and a biology that can overcome that to reach the states and vibrations of forgiveness reach the states and vibrations of unity, reach the states of co-creation. So we're going to need more intelligence, more vibration, more potential. And it's sitting just moments away. And for that, I'm relieved. And that's why I do have hope. And I do sleep really well these days because I can feel it in myself like, oh my gosh, like any problem I can possibly think of is so small compared to the potential that we have whether we say the potential as a human, but more than that, the planet. This planet is poised for the biggest explosion of life because of the amount of stress we've put it under. The virome has stored the potential. Stress creates new potential. We have been an existential level of stress on this planet, and therefore we have given it great potential. So if we back off on the stress and allow Mother Nature to come play with us... So much potential. Zach,
1: what is this institute you speak of? Do you, do you have a link or something you uh, can...
0: Naturallawandgov.org is the website. And the institute is there to start to look at all of the sciences, from biology to sociology and on down the cascade, engineering. Start to reimagine those fields of ingenuity and in human science within the context of nature. One of the big things I'm be very eager for is if you go to Wikipedia and read Natural Law, it talks about... I don't even know if it's generous enough to talk about the Iroquois and and Confucius, but it, it has all these examples of human systems of governance that have been put around this concept of natural law. I'm excited to blow out the human side on that and say, no, natural law is something that governs all of life. And now that we understand that the microbiome is critical to the sovereignty and function of my one being, it has to be true for all of the species. And so natural law needs to be expanded to understand the sovereignty of all life, human or otherwise. And once we do that, we can start to find the relationship that allows for support through sovereignty, through you know, the respect that comes out of seeing the beauty in one another. And it leads to these systems of governance that have been long tried and true and have worked over and over again. Every time we reach an empire collapse, There's a small contingent that are practicing natural law that allow human species to reorganize and then corruption starts to kick in and the egoic mind takes back over and we build another empire. But what happens between the nodes of empires is natural law. It's happened over and over and over again. And so I think if we elevate natural law right now, instead of waiting for some great collapse, we could begin the prospect of building of a new democracy, a true democracy where all life has sovereignty and all has a vote in the journey. And we can realize that the bacteria are voting for you with your health. If you don't allow them to vote, your health will fail. And so down to the single celled organisms, everybody's in this democracy of life. And I believe that the Institute of Natural Law can be a playground for us to start to work as as, as groups of people. And so we're very eager to have the mechanism by which we spawn new ideas and we hope citizen leadership all over the world starts to join us with these dinner party activations or by having a group of people together with as much biodiverse ideas as you can come up with. These are your enemies at the PTA. These are your the people that drive you nuts at work and fight <laughs> them all over and say, here's an existential threat to the humanity. We need to figure out food sovereignty. How could we self-organize as as a local local community to overcome that problem? And then the institute can listen into all of that and start to build a fabric of local local solutions that inform one another of the potential of a a world of food sovereignty. Tackle the subject of education. Tackle the 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 subject of criminal criminal law or the penal system or the prison system. Tackle the issue of sex trafficking tackle this subject of you know, drug trafficking or arms, we can start to ask the biggest questions and get really specific answers as to what's going to work at the local level. And things like the mycelial network of the internet can be the thing that solves for it. Things like a new version of social media where everybody has sovereign space within it and nobody's information is sold to advertisers, but we start to coherently own our space at the sovereign level, not because it's seen as our own and we can't share it. It's because we have our own space because we are sovereign and we get to share it. And so if we become the bacteria and we start to genetically swap all of the new information ideas across this matrix, I think we could see natural law and governance become a way of being. I think we are close now. We see this most recent conflict in Ukraine being much different. I've never seen 20% of the Soviet Union or Russia, you know, step up in my lifetime to protest their own government's behavior. We're seeing it. Russia is, is protesting its own behavior. Never seen that before. There is this awareness starting to creep across nation state boundaries and identities to say we're all human the planet is dying we should probably all band together and do something cuz the existential threat is not ukraine or fascism or communism or you know capitalism the existential threat is humanity we need to resolve that threat we need to become part of this new philosophy so i'm hopeful that you know the institute well natural law has been taught over and over again for years and years but my nonprofit, Farmer's Footprint, we got lucky and we stepped into a void of, of, of information and knowledge. And we did something maybe slightly unique, which was you took the doctor's perspective of, here's human health crisis, and it has to do directly with soil crisis. And by putting your own family's human health in connection directly with soil health, we got everybody interested in the subject. Whereas before that, the whole story of soil health is very important was an abstract concept. But when your child has attention deficit disorder, eczema and allergies to everything and asthma, and you find out that has to do with soil, suddenly you do care about soil. And so I can now tell you, you do care about social political system and governance because the breakdown of function of the economy that supports your household, the poverty that has emerged from 300 million new households uh, and has been inflicted upon them perhaps through human behavior in these last two years is forcing this topic of how do we govern ourselves in the realm of a very finite planet with very finite resources when it's in a model of exploitation and consumerism, how do we change that? It is pertinent to every household. If you are not part of your own governance, you are part of the problem as far as I'm concerned. You are outsourcing to the egoic mind what you should be allowed to do and not do. If you are feeling a limitation to your freedom right now, it's because you outsourced it long ago. It's nobody else's fault that your civil liberties are being taken away. You gave them away a long time ago. I gave them away a long time ago. But we can reclaim them because we are ultimately the sovereign being. And when we start to learn how to govern ourselves on the local, local level again, by human communication and understand the critical nature of relationship, we'll change society which might change our philosophy.
1: That's awesome, man. I love that. And we're going to put that in the show notes. The show notes for this episode are lukestory.com slash Zach Bush. When it comes to biohacking with silver, silver biotics is the best kept nano silver secret out there. I've tried tons of silver products over the years and even used to make my own colloidal silver at home and nothing I've used even comes close to the safety and effectiveness of silver biotics. They make a whole suite of products you can use for everything from immune support, oral hygiene, skin care and wound care, and even an amazing pet formula. I always keep this stuff on hand at home and especially when I travel. Silver Biotics basically serves as my own little first aid kit and pharmacy. It's also much stronger than the other silver products I've used in the past. In fact, independent studies have shown their medical silver gel to be 10 times more effective than products with up to 3,000 ppm of silver, which is a geeky way to say it's super strong. It's also more bioavailable. The particles of silver are not neutralized in the body unlike other forms of silver. And if you consider antibiotics, they have only one mechanism of action. This is why when a less strong antibiotic does not work, you got to move on to another stronger one. But this technology does it differently. They created a metallic nanoparticle with a thin silver oxide coating. This means their silver sole technology has multiple forms of action. Because of this, you need way less of their nano silver particles to accomplish the same thing as you would with other ionic or colloidal silver particles. These products are truly next level and useful for such a wide application. So I highly recommend you give them a shot. So just go to silverbiotics.com. And when you get there, the code LUKE30 gets you 30% off your first order. And the code LUKE gets you 10% off ongoing orders. So again, that's silverbiotics.com. Um. Zach, I feel like I should let you go because you've offered so much value and energy here today, but I have to ask you about one more thing. Um, something that's really interesting about you just as a personality and thought leader is that you are like not salesy about a product that you make that I think is amazing. And out of my own curiosity, I want to know a bit about your Ion, um, gut health product. I've been using this for a couple of years. I think it, when it came out, it had a different name, Restore or something, I believe. Yeah, someone turned me on to that a few years ago now back in LA and the gut's always been kind of my Achilles heel and it's helped me tremendously. And then you came up with this um, sinus support nasal spray recently and I've been using that and sinuses have also been problematic for me and it's helped with that. But I literally just started taking it and I've never known anything about it like I don't know what's in it don't know what it does I mean it says some stuff on the bottle I'm just like my body likes it I'm tuned in I know it helps my digestion and things like that so if you would humor me and um the listeners in, you know your humble non-salesy way what what's the science behind this product ion and and what does it do because last time I wanted to touch on it in our first interview and we got too much done and we didn't have time so I want to know
0: uh, we just talked about it for two hours. So <laughs> okay, it, it, So it turns out this <laughs> okay, is perfect. the intelligence of soil. Okay. Um, so the way I found myself to soil was through the human health journey. I was developing chemotherapy at the University of Virginia. And the chemotherapy I was developing happened to be derived from vitamin A compounds, uh, vitamin A from nutrient sources. And it took me a couple of years of studying these these retinoids before it dawned on me that this is what comes in a carrot because um, I had no nutrition background as as a doctor. What about the...
1: Like fat soluble retinol from like codulivore, codulivore Sure, or all of them like are vitamin A compounds okay. that
0: have different versions of of these retinoid compounds on okay. there so um, so anyway, studying those and came to understand mitochondria I was an endocrinologist, which means that you understand hormones and the way they relate to metabolism or those mitochondria inside our cells that are releasing all that light energy that we were talking about. And so uh, the breakthrough came when I went and started a, a plant-based you know clinic teaching plant-based diet to reverse chronic disease. Um, I had tried to start at the university and had all kinds of flack from the dietitians because it didn't fit into the f- food pyramid that they were <laughs> they were teaching. And so I couldn't do it at the university. Not enough soybean <laughs> oil? Yeah, exactly. Not <laughs> enough dairy in there to, to make you healthy. Um, so at any rate, uh, I had to exit the university but started a nutrition center for reversing chronic disease through food. And over the first two years, I was stunned to see it wasn't working very well in about 30% of our patients. About 30% of our patients I could evidence were actually getting sicker on things like kale than they had been on the most you know ridiculous rural poverty diet that you can imagine, which is basically white bread and processed meat and weird dairy things like Miracle Whip. And so you've got Miracle Whip and white bread and, and highly processed meat being consumed by a population. Then you try to put them on kale and they get sicker, more bloating, more inflammation, more brain fog. It's a disaster. So it took me two years of doing that before I came to realize that Maybe they were being honest and they were trying to do kale, you know. I just kept saying they're just eating junk, blah, blah, blah. I kept blaming them. When I came to trust these people like my own family because I developed a relationship with them for the first time because I became a family doctor in rural Virginia, I started to have a relationship and I started to trust these people. I started listening to my patients and I started to learn and I started to find out that their guts had been so long to, you know, on in this chemical environment that they had lost the soil system that we were just talking about. And when you add a brand new nutrient that they've never seen before to a dead soil, there's no bacteria, fungi, and the like that are smart enough or in that realm to, to handle that new nutrient. So that was part of the problem, is I was trying to add diet to dead dirt. They, too many antibiotics, too many herbicides, pesticides, chemicals in their food system. So that was an aha moment, but as we started to study soil, uh, white paper came in through William Vitalis in my clinic, and on page 40 of this thing, he's like, this is an important molecule, it's called fulvic acid, and I'm looking at this molecule, and I'm seeing the three-dimensional structure of some of the stuff I'd been building in the chemotherapy world, and it was this aha moment of, we've been trying to derive drugs from plants forever. What if the soil has A medicinal property to it that we've never seen before. So that was my advent into ion, is understanding that soil might contain an intelligent medicinal property to it. And within weeks of that, reading through soil science, find out that bacteria and fungi are making the molecules that I was interested in. And uh, what we learned to do was do water extractions of those and get oxygen and hydrogen to bond back on so that we could get this quantum effect of what we call redox chemistry, which is the chemotherapy I used to make was about redox communication. So we were just talking about 5G being the communication bandwidth in the electromagnetic field or the resonance of the cell. At the biochemical side, redox chemistry is the communication. And so the wireless network inside of a cell is not necessarily waveform, it's chemical reactions of hydrogen molecules and their release of electrons. And so you can picture this as like a a circuit board inside of your cell. And circuit boards have the ability to transit electricity through them. And all these little on-off switches say yes, no, yes, no, and you get the intelligence of a, a microchip. Every one of your cells is a living microchip with the ability to traffic electrical energy through it. And, and the, it's not made on gold wires or things like that that you would find on an Intel processor. Instead, it's made of redox chemistry molecules that line up into these fabrics or colloidal structures that passage electrical energy. So we took the intelligence of soil from bacteria and fungi from 50-million-year-old soil, you know, preceding the last extinction, 60-million-year-old soil, And we take that ore and we do water extraction of all of the different carbon molecules made by bacteria and fungi. There's millions of them in soil. And those carbon molecules can line up once you get the hydrogen to bond to them as that colloidal structure. So when you drink ion, you're literally infusing that electrical circuit board back into your cellular structure, which means you can transit more information faster. And when you can transit information, it means you have a higher level of intelligence at the the cellular level. So when we put this into a petri dish of gut lining, for example, the whole cell system starts making more and more protein structures to define the boundary of the gut wall.
1: Wow. And
0: so we can take you from a leaky gut phenomenon of somebody who's devoid of their microbiome, therefore not repairing their gut wall, loaded with glyphosate, which is the most common herbicide in our environment that breaks tight junctions in your gut lining, the Velcro there, and creates leaky gut. The whole population today has leaky gut, leaky brain, leaky kidneys on some level. So we are leaking across all of our boundaries. And for that, we turn into chronic inflammation balls. And for chronic inflammation, we manifest chronic disease, asthma, allergies, attention deficit, autism, Alzheimer's, Parkinson's. It all happened in 1996. Everything went, which was the year we started spraying glyphosate everywhere and killing the microbiome. And so we created genetically modified crops in 1996, allowing us to spray herbicides, antibiotics all over the place. And we killed the microbiome. And all of these diseases took off because we started to leak. And as soon as we put this ion stuff on cell membranes, whether it be blood brain barrier, kidney tubules, vascular tree, or the gut, the very first thing that happens is self identity occurs. All the cells get together and say, oh, yeah, we're a human gut. Let's make a boundary event. So they make. Billions and billions of these little proteins that build out these tight junction Velcro systems to create a coherent boundary event. And so when you drink this, you are reinforcing the boundary event of who you are. Intelligent system of communication is reinvigorated because the microbiome is the source of your intelligence. It, it, I find this to be such a miracle that we've discovered in the last 10 years in our lab. The microbiome makes the communication network the you know, intel processor of your human cells work. Without the microbiome, your processors all slow down. And with that sluggish amount of information, you can't repair at the same rate. So you age faster, you disease faster, you get chronic inflammation. When you drink the intelligence of nature, <laughs> which is what ION stands for, the intelligence of nature is there is, as a name that is quite literal. This is literally how intelligence is transferred through information with a, at the cellular level. So the reason why you start drinking that, not knowing anything about it and stuck with it for a couple of years, it's, been it's a because few years. you yeah. literally yeah. feel more coherent. What does <laughs> wellness feel like? You feel coherent. Right. What does sickness feel like? Discoherent yeah. message. Yeah. Brain fog, confusion, poor sleep quality, poor sex drive, poor concentration, poor executive function. So we've had this humble experience as scientists of rolling this thing out to the world. We now, you know, ship to 120 countries worldwide. We've reached, you know, millions of households over the last 10 years with these products. Um, there's a skin one that just came out that is really profound. I'll send you some of that because while it's hard to picture and feel your gut lining, you can see your skin and see it change. With one application. Oh, wow. Because the skin formula has a bunch of you know carriers for the keratinocytes. And so it's basically like, not only is it the communication network, it's also the compost or it's the nutri- micronutrients needed by different cell populations. So the gut one is that needed by the, the epithelial layer of your gut, which starts at your sinuses and runs through the whole system. The one at the skin, skin is a much different ecosystem cellularly and there's a different nutrient base there that we deliver through the skin product. And so through the nutrients and communication of the skin, we get this resilience factor that revs up and you get tight junctions. And so the boundary of your skin becomes more clear. And with boundary of skin, you get less dryness and eczema and things like that. You also maintain the water within your body better. You're not radiating water off in the same way. But more excitingly than that, in some ways, you've created a boundary event in skin, sinus, and gut when you go on the three products. And so now you've got two tennis courts in surface area between the gut, the skin, and the sinuses in excess of two tennis courts in surface area that just became coherent. And I mentioned earlier in our podcast that the boundary event creates the infinite. When you find your self-identity and say, this is me, you get to tap into that knowledge field. The consciousness becomes clear because you have a coherent vessel to stand within as a vibrational force. So these products do a lot of cool things in biology. But the thing that really lights me up is these things do things to atomic physics. This thing is polishing. I, I was the first you know, patient, if you will, to ever just swallow this stuff. And I, I was bonkers. I was in my Western medicine mind. So I was like giving myself IVs of it and all this stuff. <laughs> Do not recommend that because it's not supposed to be in your vein. It's supposed to be talking to your bacteria across your skin, your sinuses. And this so it works much better if you allow the bacteria to understand the communication rather than try to make it a human experience, which is what I had to finally divorce myself of. It's not about maximizing the human. It's about supporting the entire ecosystem. So this thing definitely does cool things about rebuilding my tight junctions to make me a vessel of light that's more coherent and not leaking my light energy out through chronic inflammation and dysfunction and disorder. I'm becoming more coherent as a vessel, therefore more coherent as a light being. I'm excited by the results of that because it allows me and my coherence to hear everything else. It makes me a better listener. I can listen to the cosmos in ways that I couldn't have 10 years ago when I was eating crap food and working at the University of Virginia and doing all these things and not sleeping and I was incoherent, therefore I was easily programmed. I have become coherent, which has made it very difficult for me to be programmed and very easy for me to tap into information beyond myself. And so that's what all of us have the potential to do. And so ION really is where all of this that I've shared with you for the past two years came from, or two hours. And so for the last two hours, everything I've learned is from a bunch of molecules made by bacteria and fungi and soil. My intelligence <laughs> comes from that crazy.
1: bottle. <laughs> Dude, am I am I f- deluding myself when I go out and eat and you know, I'm not in control of things and maybe I <clears throat> have a bunch of bread that's probably sprayed with glyphosate. Um, which I have a sense that I'm more sensitive to glyphosate than actual gluten because there are times when I eat gluten and I'm fine, there's times when I'm not. But I come home and I chug the Ion. I will do like a couple sprays of that anytime I go off. The, the diet plan, do you think that's like doing
0: anything good or is it in my head? Oh, it's totally doing that. So the information overcomes the injury very rapidly. In okay. fact, the information can prevent the injury. And so when we put this on cell membranes uh, and, and then expose it to gliadin, which is the, the compound within gluten that causes tight junction injury and leaky gut, it doesn't occur. The gut actually becomes stronger, not weaker. So if you precede the meal with a couple sprays of that, hello pizza. You're there. You're eating pizza again, and and you have the French experience. The Americans will fly over to France and they'll have a croissant and they'll be like, I feel great. Then they'll come back to the states and they'll be like, I must not be gluten sensitive anymore, and they eat a croissant and they're in brain fog for three days. You nailed it. You're not sensitive to gluten, nor is any human being. We're sensitive to the herbicide that's carried by the gluten. When did that start? 1992. We started spraying wheat as a desiccant to dry it so we could harvest it earlier. That's why we started spraying our food. Four years before we ever genetically modified corn to be Roundup ready, we were spraying Roundup on wheat. And by 1994 or 96, we were seeing widespread gluten sensitivity. It wasn't gluten sensitivity. It's glyphosate poisoning we became leaky guts because of the glyphosate that the gluten was carrying for us. And then you fast forward and now we're desiccating, you know, hundreds of millions of acres of crops every year and the ones that get the highest level of desiccation are the legumes. Really? And so you've got You know, Dr. Gundry and people running around saying, Oh, it's lectins that are the problem. Yeah, gluten was a problem. Now it's lectins are the problem. Well, lectins are robust in legumes, lentils, and other, you know, compounds like this. And so Dr. Gundry's like, Don't you can't eat any lectins. We're not we've been eating legumes since the beginning of humankind, human civilization as a staple. We've been eating wheat since the beginning of time without a problem. It's when we created extremely high residues of glyphosate in the legume that it became toxic to us. And so I'm very frustrated that our scientific community keeps demonizing viruses, gluten, lectins, all this stuff, while ignoring <laughs> that we're literally poisoning the body with the stuff that's being carried in the air pollution, or the or the gluten, or the soybean, or whatever it is. Like, oh, I, I, this is where my patients can like start to hit a wall, and then I have to realize that's me. That all of those scientists that are there, that's me. I was there just a few months ago, literally. You know, I was out there making chemotherapy to poison bodies because I was easily programmable, because I was an incoherent waveform myself. I didn't know who I was. So the journey into self, bizarrely for me, has had to do with bacteria coming into my life. And when I started drinking the intelligence of nature and trusting that the ecosystem had something to do with my self-identity, I found myself. And there is a journey into that for all of us. The more we connect to the microbiome, the more we breathe the microbiome, get out in as many diverse ecosystems as you can. Hashtag breathe your biome is something we started a few years ago. And people send in pictures of themselves interacting with nature all over the world. My favorite one are the kids that are like out in waterfalls and jumping off of things and making mud piles and doing kid stuff. So breathe your biome is a concept that's very important because we breathe in all the viral intelligence, all the genetic potential of repair and regeneration and generation of things we've never seen before lies within the air we breathe, lies within the soils under our feet. So when you start drinking ion or spraying ion in your nose or spraying it on your skin, it's your vote to be reconnected to nature. And you have to be reconnected to nature all the time now because we've created such toxic environment for ourselves. 75% of the rainfall in the United States is contaminated with Roundup. 75% of the water we drink is contaminated with Roundup. So it's no longer oh conventionally grown food. It's the rain falling on Dude, you. I didn't that's even... I, I'm always
1: thinking about acid rain and God knows what else is in the sky. But yeah, the Roundup ends up in that water system. Roundup oh, is a water-soluble crazy. toxic.
0: And so with, with our environment this toxic, we need to consciously and through human behavior make an... A real effort to reconnect to nature. And every time you do, you will find beauty. And every time you find beauty in nature, you will see something of yourself. And every time you see something of yourself, you will become a more coherent waveform. And when you become more coherent, you will be less programmable by the egoic world we live in. And the less egoic programming you have, the more freedom you will find. The Institute of Natural Law is about finding freedom for every organism on the planet to express the highest vibration it can, which will be the most Connectivity to biodiversity possible, which will allow for the highest amount of agitation ever seen. The cascade is right here in front of us and it's going to start in our soil systems. And so until we repair the food system and soil systems, I think ion is going to be a nice entry point for us to get back to the intelligence of the nature we live within. Our goal, and this is why we've poured so many of our resources as a company into our nonprofit farmer's footprint. Our goal is to put ourselves out of business in the next couple of decades by getting the food system so vigorous that nobody needs to go take fossil soil anymore. And so help us put this company out of business by starting to reconnect (laughs) yourself to ION and find yourself to Farmer's Footprint to engage with farmers in your community to get yourself free. To find freedom for that farmer will be the beginning of it. I got to speak with Dolores Huerta in this this panel discussion. Dolores is the most decorated, you know, activist in, in in the United States. She's been invited to the White House by every president since Eisenhower to be awarded, you know, recognition for her civil rights and civil liberties activism. She was speaking with me in uh, at an event, and afterwards, I was sitting at her feet and trying to explain to her farmer's footprint and ion and all these cool things we're doing in nature and blah blah. And blah, blah. she finally put her hand on. She's in her late eighties puts her hands on my shoulder. She says, I don't really understand what you're all talking about that. But I do know one thing for sure is that I've never seen a successful revolution that didn't begin with the farmers. And that has been my touchstone ever since. It's like farmer's footprint. We had this idea that the soil was important. But what we're really talking about is a sociopolitical revolution that will begin when we start to understand economics, not through metrics of the US dollar, but metrics of real assets of soil, water, and air. And until we base a global economy on soil, water, and air, we will be exploiting her. And so we need to change our macroeconomics to come in line with our farmers. We're doing that now through, through an organization, BiomeCapitalPartners.com. Biome Capital Partners is bringing large equity alongside partners for partnership for them to own their land again. It's too many farmers don't own their land, like we talked about. So, by allowing farmers to have the sovereignty of of being able to work the land that that they're responsible for, or to to have ownership over it, it allows them to have more sustainable uh, relationship to that land, and so they can make those tough decisions to come off of USDA crop insurance and go ahead and go regen. You you lose USDA support if you you exit conventional uh, processes. So, we need to be partners to them as not consumers, but co-creators with farmers. We need to bring our capital alongside farmers to say, we're going to be on the journey towards regeneration with you. And we're we're going to be your stopgap between you and, and a bad storm or loss of a crop we're going to support you through the bumps so that you can rebuild our planet for us. So biomecapitalpartners.com, we're working with large you know, family offices, net worth individuals, uh, and ultimately larger you know, controllers of, of large equity globally to bring farm partnership as a concept globally through all marketplaces. And, and until we do that as a global macroeconomic system, we are part of the problem.
1: Damn, brother. You're doing good work. Thank you. <laughs> Uh, for those listening, for all those URLs, uh, you can find it at lukestory.com slash Zach Bush. Oh, my God. Oh, and thank you for making a pet formula, too. Because that's something that trips me out is all the atrazine and all the shit they spray on golf courses in your city park. Like Our dogs and you know pets are running around on all this Roundup-like stuff and probably Roundup itself. Um, even though I feed her a clean diet, I do put that in her food as well.
0: Yeah, it's likely that the Department of Transportation in your state uses far more glyphosate and Roundup than your, all your farmers put together really department of transportation sprays it down every highway line and everything else to clear the weeds off the sides of the highway <laughs> into our water systems and the like and oh so yeah it's all thank it's your,
1: god you gave me it's hope today because it, it, when you say stuff like that i'm just like ah <laughs> god stop <laughs> so thank you for infusing the wake-up calls with uh, such a generous portion of, of uh, a hope and and wisdom and like i said earlier just your optimism is really appreciated I know, especially in the past couple of years, I mean, so many people I know are just like, really? Like, what is happening here? It's just gotten so crazy. Um, So thank you for doing the work you do. And um, more than anything, man, thank you for taking the time to come by and have this conversation. And I can only hope it hits another 87,000 people, you know, that might actually get a light bulb turned on and say, hey, wow, maybe there is something that I can do. You know, not just within myself and my own growth and my own awareness, but take a step, like visit one of your sites and support some of the initiatives you're doing. And I think you're, you're on to something really big. So thank you.
0: Glad to be here with all of you. Uh, 87,000 would be more than enough because uh, so few people have shaped human history. And so right. it takes people who are in coherence with themselves to carry enough gravity to change the course of a species. So it's going to take so few of us to change the course of our species behavior when we become coherent. We carry great density and therefore great power when we become coherent with self. And so uh, I encourage all of you to be self-empowered, to realize that uh, when you take the lid off and really let your power out of the box and and become coherent, uh, we, we can't imagine what happens. We can't imagine how beautiful it gets. And so you are enough, each of you are enough to overcome all the horrors of what's currently going on on the planet. They're actually, at the trauma level, a ditzel compared to the beauty that you carry within you and so the trauma can be so quickly overwhelmed by the beauty and uh, and uh, we are just moments away from that realization thank you sir appreciate you all
1: that's a wrap folks i want to sincerely thank you for joining me on this episode of the lifestylist podcast and if you're a longtime listener please know how much i appreciate your presence here and that I am committed to keeping you inspired to build the incredible life you deserve by presenting guests like Zach each and every week. And if you're new to the show, I'll invite you to check out the solo cast Q&A this Friday, followed by episode 418 next Tuesday. That one's called Injection Recovery Protocols and Finding Forgiveness for Perpetrators of Evil with Jonathan Otto. And trust me when I say next week's uh, Tuesday show is a powerhouse of an episode that you don't want to miss, especially if you enjoyed this one. And finally, I'd like to offer a rock-solid endorsement for Zach's company, Ion. Their products are extremely powerful and unique. So if you've got gut issues, as most of us have, even if we don't know it, Ion is, for me, a critical piece of the healing pie. I take it just about every day, and especially if I happen to eat gluten or some foods laced with glyphosate. It is truly one of my top secret weapons in my old uh, home pharmacy there. You can grab some Ion for yourself, and your pets, in fact, at lukestory.com slash ion. And they have provided us with a discount code, which is Luke15, and that gets you 15% off everything in their store except subscriptions. Again, the link there is lukestory.com slash ion, and the code is Luke15. All right, that's what's up. I'm off to see the wizard. Have the best day ever, and we'll meet again this Friday and again next Tuesday. Bless your life to infinity.